This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 13 of Through the Years, the show where two guys who, uh, I didn't think of anything this time, so we're just two guys, run through Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. And as always, guy number one is me, Trevor Dame, from Canada, and guy number two is Matt Feuerstein, from New York, America. That's the full name of the state. That is, and I... um I actually am just one of the guys, so um, I'm secretly a, a pretty girl. <laughs> That's a great film reference. I It's really a secret, though. Nobody would ever <laughs> guess. <laughs> you know, you want to have a great night, you listen to uh, this podcast, then you go find that movie. That's right. And then you forget to watch that movie. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I want to apologize because uh, we've been off a little bit longer than usual, and that's because I had some... Uh, the most horrible family things that can happen, but that is past now, and I am actually really looking forward to just going back and doing normal human being type things. Yes. Like a wrestling podcast. Yes, and I am very happy to have you back, and I can I think I speak for the entire uh, audience of the show when I say we, uh, we missed you, and we, uh, we're thinking about you, and we, uh, we, uh, we think you're the best. Oh, that's nice. Just don't think about me in any lewd circumstances unless you really need to. Now, I'm the one who's a pretty girl. <laughs> you definitely are. Thank you. Um, so, one thing that actually did help me through the last few weeks has been wrestling podcasts. And if there's anything this trying last month has got, taken me through, it's that I was allowed to now have a great segue to the great podcasts at the <laughs> pro wrestling only place to be nation. You know, when your dad passes away and you're grieving some great podcasts that really did help. Honestly, this is true. Like this sounds like such a fake thing, but, um, where the big boys play hasn't had an episode in a long time. And that's, you know, Chad and Parv do a show on the place to be nation podcast network the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network where they review um wcw and we've we've this is the first ever in the 13 episode history of through the years where i have repeated a plug for a specific podcast and that's because chad and parv have busy lives and they haven't been able to do an episode in a long time so it was like manna from heaven that we got where the big ploy boys play episode number 91 clash of the champions 23 and I just, that was something that really got me through a tough day, especially when, um, if I remember correctly, Parv kept asking Chad if he had seen the Holyfield fight, and then we both, me and Chad, me listening and Chad on the podcast realized at the same time, he was talking about the Floyd Mayweather, um, Conor McGregor boxing <laughs> fight, so, um, that gave, gave me a big laugh when I needed it, um... And the one other show I'd like to plug from the network is the Place to Be podcast 468, which is their seventh annual Halloween Spooktacular. Um, That was a podcast where they had a bunch of people on doing quick little short segments. And me and Matt were invited on, but we were just busy and I was going through stuff. So I apologize that we couldn't appear on, but it's still, it's like the Whitman sampler of podcasts. So you get to try out a lot of different hosts very quickly, so I think that's something people should uh, 
listen to. And none of the hosts had like weird raspberry nougat in them, so it was <laughs> better than the Whitman sampler. I am actually Matt. This is this is probably going to end the podcast. I am the guy who eats all the raspberries. Oh, all right. Hey. I am beloved at parties. Well, I hope everybody is excited for the last episode of Through the... <laughs> Tune in next time when Joe Gagne and Matt will be running down one-year anniversary show. Uh, but, if anyone's getting kicked off the show, it's me. But I will. No. I, I do want to echo what you said about uh, where the big boys play. It's very exciting to have it back. I would say, at least for me, it's the number one inspiration for this show. Um, I, I, uh, if we could do half as good a job as they do running down the history of WCW... Uh, I feel like we have done well. Yeah, when Matt um, started the, I mean, he came up with the idea for the show and asked if I wanted to do it. I think you literally said something to the effect of, "What if we try to do something similar to where the big boys play, but with Ring of Honor?" So, mm-hmm. definitely one of like the the forefathers of the guys review a wrestling company show by show, like one of the best, one of the early ones, and so good. Like even if they only do one episode every. Six months, as long as they keep doing them, I'm a happy camper. Yes. But, so now going to the news between the last show and this show, we actually have almost none because uh, Final Battle, our last show in 2002, was December 28th, and Revenge on the Prophecy, tonight's show, is only two weeks earlier, I mean two weeks later. So there's really only one news bit, which I thought is only tangentially related to Ring of Honor, but I thought it was interesting, which was... Dave writes in The Observer, jobbing on the Velocity tapings were Brian Danielson and Ring of Honor champ Xavier. Very few people had a clue who they were, and people were more on Dragon for his white trunks, chanting tidy whitey at him. I guess you can't turn them down, but once you've established a bit of a name, I don't think you do yourself any favors being pegged as a Velocity jobber. So I looked it up, and indeed, Xavier... um, lost to Chuck Palumbo on Velocity, and Brian Danielson wrestled a guy named uh, Jamie Noble on the same episode of Velocity. I, I don't think he'd ever wrestle him again, would he? Uh, hmm. Certainly not in Ring of Honor to win the Ring of Honor title. Hmm. But it uh, it was interesting. I, I did go back and watch these. These matches are both uh, available on YouTube. You can find them very easily. Uh, the crowd did really get on Danielson, chanting "Tidy Whitey" pretty loud, which is kind of a surreal experience when you know what he's going to become in the WWE years yeah. and years later. Yeah, I was thinking it's so funny to think about. You know, these two guys, and all they are just like, um, you know, they're just total jobbers on uh, Velocity. And now look at Xavier now. <laughs> And the funny thing was, um, if, if, for people that want to go back, not that, you know, I, I wrote this on Twitter a few days ago that this is extra credit homework, you know, it's optional. But if you watch Xavier and Chuck Palumbo, uh, Palumbo gives Xavier a surprising amount. He, like, lets Xavier hit a lot of his signature offense near the end, and Palumbo almost wins just, you know, like, kind of some, I think, like, a weird, like, ref miscommunication lets Palumbo hit one move and get the pin. But And the Noble-Danielson match is more of a 50-50, a lot of technical wrestling. I think it's a couple minutes longer. And they, they kind of get the crowd to buy into a couple spots near the end. But as far as Dave um, not want, saying you shouldn't get pegged as a velocity jobber, I know what he means. But obviously with Danielson doing one or two, I mean, we'll see in the future of this year. You mentioned to me, it reminded me that like there's a really good uh, Danielson-Cena velocity match coming up yeah yeah i mean it, yes it, it i'd say 
it, you know, Danielson obviously overcame it, so did many people over the years, but, you know, it was many, many, many years later before Danielson got back into WWE. So it's not like, it's not like it was a quick turnaround. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they let it settle for a while. Yeah. But also it's interesting in that we're, I guess we're not quite in the Ring of Honor stage yet where the champions would be very protective about wins and losses because when Samoa Joe was in the meat of his ROH title reign, He'll be a lot. It'll be a big deal if Joe does anything like any big losses on the indies while he's the champ. Where the champ starts to protect themselves more. They they um they just you know they don't lose clean often outside of Ring of Honor. Where you know here you have the Ring of Honor champion jobbing to Chuck Palumbo on a velocity, which I mean you can't turn down that opportunity, I guess. But yeah. they, they they haven't quite got to that. I guess Ring of Honor doesn't maybe have that. Qu- level of clout yet where they can say you know well maybe you shouldn't be doing this right now well just wait wait till a few months later when we get to the debut of paul london in wwe <laughs> and finally the thing we'll get to now well, not finally that was the only story we had non-show is revenge on the prophecy which took place january 11th 2003 in west mifflin pennsylvania to a crowd of 300 people so it's my favorite mifflin <laughs> you don't like east mifflin no i'm from south mifflin you know. southwest mifflin oh, forget it <laughs> but i guess the couple interesting things about this would be one 300 is easily the lowest crowd ring of honors done in its short history so far and also, other than being the first show of 2003, I guess the other big noteworthy thing would be this is the first show they've ever done outside of um, just outside of Boston or Philadelphia. The first 12 shows were done 10 in Philly and two outside of Boston. And then they tried to do Night of the Butcher in um, Hamburg, Pennsylvania, which is only about, I think, four hours away from West Mifflin. West Mifflin's like four hours to the west and closer to the ohio border but it's interesting that um dave always talks about you know at this time and i don't know if he's right looking back we can argue but how he keeps saying this talking point over and over where ring of honor is budgeted to break even if they do like 400 and change live attendance well this is a show where they clearly would not break even on live attendance yeah although as Um, i mentioned that you know the DVD sales, it's a should or the tape sales is supposed to be a big part of this too. So we yeah, don't really know what's going on there with the finances. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I think the way Dave once put it was, um, if they break even with the live attendance, it's a success no matter what, because then they'll make money on the tape sales. But even if they don't break even on the live attendance, tape sales can still make up for that. So, yeah. um, let me just see here. It's interesting that looking back that they even tried to run Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and then for Night of the Butcher and had to move it back to Philly because Hamburg is only an hour and 17 minutes away, which is almost to me like a why bother running that close to Philly? Yeah, you're basically running in Philly if you have, if it's like less than an hour and a half outside of the city. Yeah, this is at least a bit farther away. And in fact, I, uh, I went to the Ring of Honor website and do through the powers of the Wayback Machine. Ooh, and uh, we've I, they had they used to have a questions and answers section on the site. And one question was from a person. Uh, this person didn't leave a name. Some people they would post their names, but someone wrote 
Will Ring of Honor be coming to Toledo, Ohio area anytime soon? I hope that you do, because I have heard so many good things about Ring of Honor, and I want to see it for myself. And the answer from Ring of Honor was, if we do well in the Pittsburgh area on January 11th and have a good turnout from Ohio, we will seriously look into running places in Ohio. So, Ring of Honor lying a bit here, because uh, I don't think they had a good turnout. They only had 300 people, but they would run Ohio anyway. But and, keep in mind, though, Pittsburgh, much smaller yeah. city than, than Philly. So if you're drawing like 450 in Philly, 300 in Pittsburgh probably makes a lot a lot of sense. Yeah, actually, yeah, I'm not as good about U.S. geography as you. But also, um, I was wondering, like, do I, I guess Indies do this, but do they just walk in the parking lot once the show starts, send someone out there and say, like, count the license plates? Like I wonder, I wonder what they do. I, know, that, to, I, I would doubt that. that because of carpooling and other ways of getting to a place. I don't know if that would really be anywhere close to accurate. They probably, but you you mean like who comes from what states and stuff? Yeah, because they're saying like you know if we have a good turnout from Ohio, and I guess you know people who would buy advance ticket sales, you could track where they're buying them from because um, West Mifflin isn't that far away from the Ohio border. Well, you know, it's but, like it's like they hire these high uh, these high powered pollsters, and they you know use model precincts of interviewing like four people and decide, and then like uh, scaling it out to see how. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Nate Silver gave Ring of Honor chances of success in um, uh, Ohio a 54.7 percent. Oh, well, but that means that there's a 40. Just like we learned last year, that means there's a 46 percent chance of failure, and that, that is significant. <laughs> And uh, one other thing before we get into the show itself will be uh, this show. This car was actually supposed to be quite different, and my memory is bad, and I wasn't following maybe all the shows this early at the time. I watched them going back, but uh, using the Wayback Machine and just Googling around, I was able to find that this car was supposed to be quite different. Um, Bobby Roode was supposed to be in the four-way tonight. But Homicide took his place because uh, Bobby Roode apparently had to cancel due to a car accident. Homicide was actually supposed to wrestle Jay Briscoe, and Jay had a last-minute personal conflict that came up. Amazing Red was supposed to wrestle in the Conan six-man tag, but he got a booking with All Japan. Uh, his first ever booking in All Japan, Gabe says on the commentary to this show. And Doug Williams was supposed to wrestle, but for some reason, was replaced with Samoa Joe. So, quite a different card on this show. Yeah, I would have to say, Doug Williams is awesome. Um, but in terms of star power, even at this point, I feel like Samoa Joe is an upgrade. Yeah, I think so too. Especially since they they were kind of setting up Danielson Joe at Final Battle with them being, you know, kind of snarly to each other right from the get-go and stuff like that. So Was this supposed to be the two out of three falls match that they were talking about at uh, at the end of the Scramble Madness show? I couldn't find that, but I bet yet that that was the case, especially when uh, Danielson and Joe will have an immediate rematch from this show on the very next show. So I'm betting Gabe's uh, plan was Doug and, and um, Brian blow off their mini like rivalry here and then Danielson has the match with Joe on the next show. So instead, well, if Doug can't make it, how about we just run Danielson-Joe twice? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But 
So we're here not to review the card that could have been. We're here to review the card that was. So, well, actually, one more thing before I get to the show. I want to read, um, I want to talk about the crowd for a second, about one other way, because Dave wrote about this show. He wrote from the live reports. It was the smallest crowd in the history of the promotion, but also described by the promotion as the best reacting crowd in that they were totally Japanese-oriented. At times, they would be so quiet that you could hear people whisper, but they reacted well to everything and weren't knocking every missed spot. It was said to be an, have been an excellent show that those who were there really enjoyed. In matches with missed spots, the crowd was polite and would pop when they got the match back. So, uh, Matt, do you agree with that assessment? Mm, no, I. Uh, I mean, I, they definitely were not an asshole crowd. Like, I didn't hear any catcalling or, you know, insults to the wrestlers, which is a very big plus because I hate that. I just feel like it ruins everything for everyone. But they also like I didn't notice that there was like they were sat in rapt attention, quiet. I thought they were quiet when things were boring, and they were well reacting when things were good. And I think that uh, makes sense, and that they so they were a good crowd. Um, but I don't think they I don't think they were very Japanese or anything like that. Very Japanese oriented. We, we are still I mean, we're at that point kind of now, but we're still at this, especially at the point here where like a lot of times Gabe or Dave will praise crowds or fans as being like Japanese fans. Like that's the highest praise you can give them. Also, is, they're so respectful. They're like Japanese. fans. Also, I, I just it never show like in modern times, Japanese fans don't really fit that stereotype anyway of like the quiet applause i mean maybe i'm just so used to seeing it in the u.s now but it doesn't they don't feel that different from american crowds nowadays um you know other than maybe you know i they don't do the uh you know the the negativity stuff the way maybe some northeast american crowds do but i don't know i don't i don't see like the it's it's not like they're like all in suits and politely applauding you know they go nuts just like american crowds go nuts Last night um, in New Japan, you know, uh, Chris Jericho revealed to uh, that, you know, they had the Chris Jericho versus Kenny Omega reveal, and I watched the clip of that, and the crowd starts chanting Y2J, you know, just like an American crowd after Chris Jericho's little promo. So, yeah, the the gulf is closed about how different, I think, crowds react. Yeah. But it is, I guess, a sign of a different time in the sense of, I feel like today's crowds aren't as hard as wrestlers when they screw things up. Where here at this point, it was still like big enough deal that you know Ring of Honor notes it to Dave. Like they didn't shit on the wrestlers when they screwed up a spot. Like they forgave them. Where I feel like nowadays you never hear a you fucked up chant at a place like PWG. Well, but back in two thousand three, it was still a big deal. Just that that a crowd wasn't an asshole to you yeah. when you screwed up a move. Although I will say shows in the Northeast U.S., whether it's ROH or WWE in particular, you still get that a lot. Um, yeah. I remember SummerSlam 2016 was partially ruined for me. I was at it because of how shitty the crowd reacted because they didn't like the way the new Universal title belt looked. And they ruined the entire match between Finn Balor and Seth Rollins just because they didn't like the belt. Like It's just like people looking for reasons to boo. I hate that. And it still happens, and it's annoying. And I think it's 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 kind of particular to these like like New York Philly crowds. 
and also I would I guess you could put in um, the post WrestleMania crowds, which are often there to kind of try and make themselves the star of the show and entertain themselves and have a good time, even if that is often tangentially related only to what's going on in the ring. You know, they'll bring the beach ball, they'll chant their memes, and you know that's a very divisive thing. Some people think that's cool for once a year. Some people absolutely hate that crowd, but. Yeah, I would say it's less mean-spirited, but there are still crowds today that, like you, the examples you just pointed out, are still more... If, if for some reason something irks them, they will just completely derail a match to entertain themselves. I will say this. WWE crowds now are more gender diverse than they used to be. You know, you'll get more like women who are earnestly there as fans, and that helps a lot. <laughs> you know, just that like that toxic masculine energy is kind of undercut a little bit, and I think that's nice, and I think that's one thing that's helped wrestling crowds in the past 15 years. Hmm, that's really interesting. It's not like it's a huge difference, but, yeah. you know, it's not like it's overwhelmingly women now, but it's definitely more. I haven't been to a WWE live event in so long that, like, I don't even have a comparison, but I've definitely heard about the demos, and you, I know you've been to a lot more uh, live wrestling than me, so I trust your opinion, Matt. But, yeah, I don't want to overstate it, but it's there. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. That's a good point. And now we will start the show f- now. No more false starts. <laughs> no more half measures, Walt. We're going to start off with something new, actually, which is we're getting a clip from the last show to start the, this show. At least on my uh, DVD, I think my thing may have shown the matches in a different order than a lot of people. We were talking about this before offline. Some reviews had it in the order I watched. A lot more seemed to have it in the order you saw it in. But my DVD was probably about only like 243 or something like that compared to most of these shows come right up to the three hour or close to it. Yeah, this, it, was, it was a little bit shorter overall. Like So yeah, that, it, that, that part is not just you. So it, it felt like, you know, you're seeing... Maybe this is the kind of thing you only see when you have time to spare. They're going to replay a clip from the last show, and that was the clip where Steve Carino revealed that Simply Luscious was the first member of his new stable. Um, Yeah, just a clip, and that leads us directly into something else fairly new, which is we get a clip from the January 1st, 2003 episode of Ring of Honor's Philly High Impact TV, which most of us, obviously, if you're not local would have missed and actually shot a fairly big angle development on their local TV. Cause we see the clip of Steve Carino and simply luscious reveal their next member of their group, which is Samoa Joe. And this is actually probably one of the funnier segments in early ring of honor history. In my opinion, uh, Carino introduces Joe as the toughest man in ring of honor. And a guy he spent a lot of time with in zero one with, and then he goes, we spent like, countless hours in hostess bars together and simply luscious who is his real life girlfriend she she like turns from a big smile to like staring at Creole like incredulously like what but then her face changes back uh then joe comes into his frame and like simply luscious like wants to high five him or shake his hand and joe blows her off silently and again she looks so disappointed and changes like this is the best acting of simply luscious is career. it's the best thing she's done in Ring of Honor so far. I thought her facial expressions were great. Yeah, even in a um, new, even in a new stable, Joe is still mean to her. Yeah, like I love that they've already established this. Li- this is the kind of thing that WWE would make hay with, like better than Ring of Honor, because they would do something like this every week for four or five Raws until it became, I think, like a thing that the crowd really enjoyed. Like just. 
they would find a different way for Joe to snub Simply Luscious every week. But It's an ROH crowd. They would love anything involving a man being mean to a woman. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And that streak's going to continue tonight, too. So um, Joe, Joe calls out the prophecy. He says that you know he and Creno are coming for their titles. He even has an I Killed Curry Man hat. So at least $20 invested on this angle. That's right. Um, Luscious puts in the, again, I thought Luscious put in a great performance here, great facial expressions throughout, and, I mean, Joe makes complete sense for the group in terms of, they had already talked about how Joe and Carino were friends, they had that segment on an earlier Ring of Honor show where um, Joe blows off a post-show prophecy meeting to go eat dinner with Carino, so, in a way, it's almost too sensible because it's not surprising at all, but... I mean, complete logic. They had already built to this that uh, Joe's part of the group. And any thoughts about that, Matt? Um, I think that I don't know how far in advance they were planting the seeds, but I like that things are progressing logically. I think that shows some growth in the uh, angle development in the company. I think I think it's cool that with the new year they're starting a new thing, and at least at this point, the thing seemed like it had promise. I'm calling it the thing in honor of uh, ROH calling the group the group. <laughs> and, of course, of Robbie Robertson and the band. You know, That's right. Being called the band. Mm-hmm. Big fan. Um, it's also interesting, I guess, that you know the first – Creedle starts a group to take on the prophecy, and the first thing he does is take two members of the prophecy. So, basically, he takes, like, one more member, and he's already killed the prophecy. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty good way to destroy a stable. That's right. And then we have a segment from the next week's episode of High Impact TV. So it's kind of it's it's interesting to me that Ring of Honor was having this existential crisis with the show through the Observer, where it seems like every month they were like, "Well, should we keep the show? Should we not keep the show?" But yet they're shooting, you know, some fairly big like angle developments on a couple of these episodes to start the year. But then also but get- just then also just re-airing them on the ne- on the DVDs anyway. So yeah. So we get a clip from the January 8th episode. Um, it's Carino, Joe, and Luscious are backstage at a show. They find the prophecy backstage. They snub Ace Steel on the way to finding the prophecy. Christopher Daniels wants to know what's up with Carino forming a group to go after all the prophecy's titles. He's miffed that Luscious, he's West miffed yeah. that Luscious jumped gonna, to us. going to make the same pun. <laughs> I beat you to it. Finally, I beat you to a pun. <laughs> but, but is he's uh, Creo's okay with Luscious leaving them because he introduces his own new stable mem- member, Steve Carino's sister, Allison Danger. Um, although this was hinted at a lot in the last couple shows, I think this is the first time they outright mentioned on a Ring of Honor release that you know Allison Danger is Steve Carino's sister. Um, Danger has ditched the Christopher Street Connection rave girl look, and she uh, is now in a more... She's going to be... Well, I don't know if she is right here, but starting like with tonight's show, she'll be a lot more of a goth look in her attire. She'll be becoming a friend of Pleather a lot more, coming up very shortly. Um, a friend of Pleather. I like that. A friend. <laughs> That's a good turn of um, phrase. Da- <laughs> Danger... Uh, let me just. See. I'm trying to find where I was in my notes. She uh, she says that when the Christopher Street connection got hurt, that Ring of Honor abandoned her and told her to stay home. Um, 
Danger then tells Luscious that when she was in the prophecy, it was all business, but now it doesn't have to be. So she's kind of flirting with uh, Chris Daniels, and Daniels responds to this, and I quote, "Ha ha ha!" So that, <laughs> that is like the most just like awkward, like I'm actually married. Like yeah, yeah. Daniels like, has always been very good at like not leaning too much into. Um, you know, like whatever, like thing he has with with uh, woman uh, performers uh, in any wrestling promotion, because I guess he must just really love his wife. Yeah, it's it's the acting. It's the uh, it's um, Creno being still. I mean, not Creno, but Daniels being stilted in a way he usually isn't. Just like just a hitch of awkwardness to it. Where yeah, he's being a good husband. He's he doesn't want to act like he's not going to be Steve Creno lecherous like yeah. Creno was often in. 2002. <laughs> um, Carino is pissed. He tells the prophecy to shine up the belts for him. Uh, both guys do that thing again where they dare each other to throw the first punch to start the war. They get pulled away by their respective stables. And that's the segment. And that's going to be all of Carino's impact on this show because he was not, I guess he was in Japan. Yeah. But, this was, this was all know, clearly, clearly filmed at Final Battle. Yeah. And they're just segments to keep the uh the feud percolating even though Carino can't really be there and there's not really going to be any other development of that feud tonight except yeah. for one little segment coming up but yep um then in the ring we get Jeff Gorman poor Jeff we still miss him he's not announced anymore it's tragic but I was so I was so excited to see him there <laughs> and he, he's always so like there's just a bit of spring in his step even yeah. vocally yeah. he's just so happy to be there and he's getting to do the ring announcing tonight and he does a good and job at that too yes he does and jeff announced introduces the show he's in the process of doing that in the ring when those rascals in special k come out uh Derange gets on the mic and he acts all high. He thinks they're in a different city than they're actually in. They do Get a pretty it. good job of acting high, I have to say. Like they're, 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 <laughs> their acting is, is not bad. Um, but uh, it, it's over the top, but it's meant to be over the top. It's, I mean, special case, like a really fun gimmick. I've heard some people recently, I forget who said it, but that special K was um, Gabe's finest hour. That might have been J.R. Goldberg on a podcast but uh i'm gonna say that's that's slightly overstated but it's it's but but it's it's and i might be misquoting him too but i just have a vague recollection of someone really praising it like it's his maybe just his best gimmick idea it's it's a really fun gimmick um they say that they're here to show ring of honor what they're all about special k not jr goldberg uh drugs and partying he says that's what ring of honor is all about derange says that ring of honor stands for Really cool house parties. One of my favorite um, lines. <laughs> Derange asks for special case music. Everyone begins to dance like a spaz until the hit squad and the SAT run in and destroy them. They go as far as to pull out both the Spanish fly and the burning hammer. Derange gets powerbombed into a mass of special K members on the outside. Luckily, Slugger is there to catch him and carry him to the back. Um... Mafia gets on the mic and he cuts one of his typical rah-rah, welcome to Ring of Honor promos. And that's basically it for the segment. I felt like this was, I thought the special K stuff was fun. I felt like 
the the hit squad stuff was kind of a throwback in the in a bad way to the first ring of honor shows where the hit squad again for some reason the ring of honor kind of books them to be this tommy dreamer-esque face of the company and voice of the company and they're doing the same thing they did to start ring of honor's history which is you bring out this big comical gimmick you have the hit squad destroy them and then the hit squad say you know that's not what ring of honor is about you know this is ring of honor except just like the christopher street connection Special K is very much part of Ring of Honor, show after show. They're a regular booked act that gets quite a lot of backstage time on some shows. Yeah, so this was literally the first segment of Ring of Honor redone in a much, much less offensive way. Um, not offensive at all, honestly. Um, but, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't like the Hit Squad in that role. I thought we were past that, and I thought they were better once they got past that. Um, but as far as these things go... Not that bad, considering how much more offensive the original version of all this was. Yeah, there's there's no insensitive comments here about drug addicts, really. There's not like, you know, oh, you know, addiction, it's all in the mind, you know. Like, <laughs> don't, don't believe it, kids. You know, they're weak-minded people. They didn't make a mistake. They're just weak. Like, nothing like that from Kate <laughs> and Doug on commentary. Um no, it's just it's just weird because Gabe on that Kevin Steen shoot interview where uh, Kevin was interviewing him on the Kevin Steen show, you know, Gabe said that that Christopher Street Connection segment was one of his that opened the first Ring of Honor show was one of his biggest mistakes or regrets from his booking tenure in Ring of Honor. Yet again, while this isn't the homophobic part, like you said, it's still basically the gist of the segment is the same. Like a year later. At this point, I don't think Gabe thinks it's a mistake because I think this is he thinks this is a perfect way to introduce Ring of Honor to a new crowd. This is the first thing they would have seen, this crowd. You know, they didn't see any obviously any of the pre aired pre-filmed segments. So, uh, this is the way you introduce it. You have some comical gimmick come out. You have the Hit Squad beat him up and say, "Are you ready to see the stiffest, most fucking hard-hitting action in the game?" and like Gabe thinks that's a good idea at this point. Are you are you sure that Gabe's beef with the the original segment wasn't just the homophobia? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think he really elaborates that much. I think it's more he just says that segment. But I I, I think you can get the segment on both ways. Obviously, the segment is horribly the original segment is horribly homophobic. But by the same token. I think it's just even with if you remove the homophobia again, like this segment is that segment without the homophobia, it's still not a great way. I don't think to introduce fans. I mean, we're probably spending too much time talking about it, but I mean, it wasn't terrible. It was just it's weird to see them literally go back to that. Well, I will say I liked it better because Special K did a good job being entertaining. Um, Deranged, I don't know why he hasn't been more successful in wrestling in general. He's very talented. He has a confidence to him yeah. that a lot of other guys at this stage don't have. Like the way he, not even just the way, not even the way he carries himself might be not the best, best phrase, but like there's just, you know, his charisma shines through and it just, he, he feels like a performer in the best sense of the word. Yeah, he's, he's really good. And um, like I said, I, you know, after like maybe like 2006, 2007, he kind of disappeared from at least any kind of real spotlight. I wouldn't have guessed that based on seeing. I would have guessed he would be like a breakout guy, like a you know in the Jack Evans mold, where he would you know continue to come into his own as an individual performer. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Maybe he just never grew. But I I 
I think I'm very impressed with Deranged right from yeah. his, right from his first appearance. Definitely one of the bigger surprises on the rewatch is realizing how much of a MVP he was to that group at the start. Yeah, like carrying the personality a load, especially. I mean, Joey Matthews did on that first show or two, but you know now he's not going to be on every show, and Deranged is, and he really carries the weight in that sense. I agree. Um, next, we get a brief clip of Allison Danger getting into a fight with Simply Luscious in the building before the show. Danger calls Luscious Veronica her shoot name. Ooh, like, it's real now, folks. Which would be... um. That would be more shocking if Gabe hadn't said, hey, that's simply luscious, Ronnie, Ronnie Stevens, like one or two shows ago like, as commentary just randomly. So they're slipping her real name in a couple times now. Um, nothing else to that segment at all. It's just a brief cat fight. Um, and then finally, we get one more backstage segment. We're loading up on the segments before the match is here. Paul London does a backstage promo. Is this, is this, is this his first backstage promo? It might be. Uh, he obviously he's been in backstage segments just as part of the gang of Rudy Boy's yeah. kids, his grumpy kids who don't appreciate him. But uh, this might be his first individual backstage promo. I'm not sure. My memory is awful. But Paul keeps talking about how there's a special vibe tonight because this is Ring of Honor's first show in a new market. He talks about his four-way match tonight. He says he needs to win to advance in Ring of Honor's new top five rankings, which is the first mention of that. Um, he points out that the four men in the match have never been together in the ring before. Uh, this promo wasn't absolutely terrible, but it's funny to see what a far cry this Paul London is from like the charismatic space case Paul London would become in a couple, in a few years. Yeah, it's definitely at this point, like the one thing he doesn't do well <laughs> is cut promos. Yeah, he's just a very straight ahead white meat baby face where he won't be like the the intrepid traveler quote uh paul london <laughs> that the indies get when he returns a changed man from smiling at vince mcmahon that's right uh, and then finally after all those segments after all that preamble the first match in west mifflin the first match is chad collier taking on matt striker no not that my matt striker the matt striker with a y with a unibrow and chad collier defeats matt striker via submission in 10 minutes 50 seconds with the Texas Cloverleaf. Matt, what did you think uh, about this match? So, I, um, first of all, I, this was one part where I was impressed with the crowd. They, they were just very open-minded to these guys that, you know, for the most part, hadn't been in ROH before. I know Collier did have the one match with Danielson that I thought was pretty disappointing. Stryker, this was his debut. You know, maybe some of these people had seen them before in the area. I don't know. But they were just very, like, open to, like, they're just basic wrestling at the beginning. I thought the announcers hyped it up a little too much early. Like, I thought they acted like this match was good before it actually got good. But I thought it did get good. I, um, you know, you could say, you know, Stryker for a while, he was doing a really good job selling his leg. Then when he finally made his comeback at the end, he stopped selling his leg, which is, you know, I'm not super picky about, but when, when you're doing such a good job of it, it is weird that you stop doing it. Um, but there were, you know, good near falls. The wrestling was good. They're both good wrestlers. I thought it was funny, um, during the match when Gabe said, oh, in eight months, these two are going to be main eventing. Because it's like, hmm, no. <laughs> Although I think I think Stryker does get one ROH title match against Samoa Joe in 2004. Um, yeah. But that's about it. Uh, Collier, I don't think, ever gets a main event. Um, but they, 
you know, this was among the higher end of like their stuff in ROH. They, you know, they they both probably didn't get much past this level of match in their time in ROH, but it was a good match. It's a good solid match that I thought the announcers hyped too soon. Like as in, like they acted like it was good before it actually got good, but then it did. So I was I was pretty happy with it as an opener. I I agree. I especially agree about what you said about the crowd. I um. This is a match where, like, when I read the Observer quote, what the what Ring of Honor said about the Japanese-style crowd, I was, like, guffawing in my head to myself before I watched this show. But when I watched this match, like, this match, they, like you said, they were, they, they watched intently for the parts that weren't exciting, and as soon as something was good that was worthy of being, like, loudly reacted to, they were very generous, very quick to react and clap. You know, I think they, they actually gave them, like, a, uh, like a halfway standing ovation after the match. At least some people left their chairs, their seats to uh, clap. So I thought they were very like this was this was an enjoyable match, but I thought they were very generous to it. They were yeah. happy to see wrestling. They were just excited it went anywhere. I thought this match at first it felt a little bland. I I'll, this a lot of this match was super pedestrian like surprisingly basic offense even for a 2003 indie show, just clotheslines, backdrops, lots of simple chain wrestling. But I also felt like they always kept the match moving and then, you know, they build up to a few bigger spots near the end. Striker does a nice quebrada, Collier hits a big power bomb, but actually the biggest thing at the end is where they go just through a sequence near the end of um, doing pick, quick pinning combinations yeah, the, to each other. Yeah, yeah, the roll-up party that they that, that happens in indie wrestling a lot. Yeah, and it does happen in indie wrestling so much, but I feel like because the match was so basic before then, it really popped. Like, the crowd really came alive for it. It actually really seemed to care who would win a Chad Collier versus Matt Stryker match. Yeah. Which I thought was surprising. But I feel like if the match was less basic, that would have felt just like, like you said, the typical, oh, it's the indie roll-up party. But because the match hadn't had a lot of flashy sequences like that, it actually did feel like more of an urgent run to the finish and did get the crowd going i felt like yeah and i and you know i think basic as long as it's well executed is good for an opener and i didn't really see this as more like that japanese style the way dave was saying i saw i saw it more as like a a 1980s like house show crowd response where like it's a baby face technical match and the crowd is cool with that they they're excited to see that because they're excited to be at the show and they want to see two wrestlers do wrestling and i thought then the wrestlers did a good job of it so that yeah. was that. And so I, w- I would say it's a- above average. I didn't think it was mind-blowing, but I-, I think you made a great point when you said it was um, just now when you said it was good for an opener because this is the kind of opener where the crowd enjoyed it, but it's not like you set a bar so high that everyone's like, oh, you know, man, you, you put one of the best matches on the opener. Like, how's anyone going to follow that? Are you going to burn them out? Like, there's nothing here. They didn't kill any, like... There was, wasn't 10 minutes of near falls. There wasn't 800 moves you have to top. The crowd wasn't going to be exhausted or have too high a sta- uh, standard set. You know, it was just enjoyable enough. And it was also funny, I felt like, where even though Gabe had to have seen this match before, he must have... Um, he must have got caught up in watching the match because at first he's doing his usual spiel of like, you know, 
whoever wins this, you know, it's going to get booked regularly. And whoever doesn't win, you know, they may or may not. We don't know. And then as the crowd gets into it and he gets into watching the match at the end, like you said, he's going, oh, well, we just made two futures main eventers here. Like he's, he's completely changed his mind. He's gone from the guy who was making fun of Matt Striker's unibrow to being like, you just saw two stars here made, made here tonight. So it's funny to see him get caught up like that. But it's also cool to see like two guys really impress the booker and you know like they you know they they did a good job. They did their jobs because the person who makes the decisions loves them. Yeah, yeah, that and that is one of the fun parts of Gabe on commentary is you can tell sometimes when he really likes something. And you know, it's it's a it's a window into the booker's mind that you wouldn't get if he wasn't an announcer. Sometimes it's a false, it's a false alarm like Jeremy Lopez. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that was a false alarm told to Dave even. So, yeah. And next we got something actually I'm going to, I put here in the notes. Um, this wasn't on the show, but they had a match that they didn't put on the DVD and that was super hentai versus mega. Uh, I know at least super hentai was a local guy for IWC in Pittsburgh. It's quite a name. And yeah, uh, <laughs> super, super hentai. I always love that name or not love that. Not for personal reasons. No, it's just, it's just funny. It's, funny. it's a funny name, <laughs> but <laughs> you're good. Uh, <laughs> I got this from a Doug Bletcher at a live report at PW Insider. I just like this bit he said about the match. He says, this was quite funny. The Steelers and Titans game just ended, so Mega comes out and trying, trying to heal up and makes fun of the Steelers losing. The only problem was that this was made him a super babyface because most of the crowd wasn't from Pittsburgh, and they popped when he said this. Oh. So... That, that's pretty funny. Maybe they did have a lot of people from Ohio for the show then. Um, Super Hentai got his pin with the foot, feet on the ropes. Star and a quarter, this guy gave it. Didn't make it to the show. Probably just doing a favor to the local promoters. Next, we get a CM Punk backstage promo. Very brief one. He talks about his rematch with Michael Shane tonight. Michael Shane beat him in the gauntlet match at uh, All-Star Extravaganza when he cheated and grabbed the ropes. Punk says if he can't beat Shane this time, he won't be able to live with himself, which uh, seems, uh, I don't know, harsh that yeah. you'll commit suicide if you can't beat Michael Shane in a wrestling match. If only he but, talked to you about how unimpressive Michael Shane was, he wouldn't take it so seriously. <laughs> you might be even more depressed because you'll be like, boy, like I'm like, you know what, Punk, you're right. This guy, so not impressive. <laughs> I mean, what, what are you ever going to do in life if you can't beat Michael Shane here? <laughs> I mean, you'll never have a good career in the UFC or anything. No. Um, but CM Punk it's all Michael does... Shane's, it's all Michael Shane's fault. <laughs> he planted a seed somehow. Mm -hmm. CM Punk did, in fact, not have to commit suicide because he wrestled and defeated Michael Shane right here at this point in the show via pinfall in 13 minutes, 5 seconds with a roll-up. And in talking about this match, I think the best part of it is that finish because there's a couple finishes on the show that acknowledge past history and reward people that have um, watched show-by-show Ring of Honor through the year. Also, I just gotta have to point out, 2003. Finally, this podcast title is not a lie because we are in a second year now. the The S on through the years is not a lie. We are in year two, so finally we can be honest with all of you. We're through the years, not through the year. We've anyway, just been big, oh, we've just been big old liars for the past six months. It's <laughs> I can finally exhale all these months. I've been holding my breath, but. 
No, they, they've been. This is one of those matches where they reward you for following, and Gabe calls it out too, where the finish of the match is. Um, well, near the finish of the match, Michael Shane rolls Punk up, and he grabs the ropes again. But this time, the ref notices and you know kicks Shane's um, arm away, and then Punk gets the win quickly with a roll up of his own. So, and Gabe is good, good on commentary to point all of this out that. Um, you know, hey, this playoff history, that's how Punk wins. And in winning Punk, Avenger, Punk started off losing to Michael Shane, losing to Colt Cabana. He beats Colt Cabana, he beats Michael Shane. So two and two, even Steven now. But as terms of a match itself, this was average. And I felt like in some ways it showed both guys' worst aspects. Michael Shane continues to think that I, the key to being a good heel is just doing headlocks in every match. He does two in short order in the middle of this match. He's not horrible. He's mechanically pretty polished. He's just, there's something about him that ever since the the Paul London match at Unscripted, that was great. There was like a switch. Um, Punk, meanwhile, he, you know, I'm going to be a broken record here with Punk on some of these early shows, but he's not a natural athlete. And on matches like this, it, where you don't have a lot to chew on other than just the moves. There, there are points where, you know, even when punk doesn't botch stuff, he, there's stuff where it looks like he's just giving every inch of himself just to make moves happen. There's like a, uh, a bridging neck bridging spot punk does where he has to do it twice. And that's the kind of spot that Brian Danielson would do probably while eating a bowl of cereal in the morning. He would do neck bridges just for fun. But with punk, you can tell it's like he just barely can pull it off because, you know, punk's not a natural athlete. I was happy to see him get it though. When he, when he failed that first, Yeah, it was a nice point. It was. And, um, I also remembered watching this match that punk is the most obvious spot caller this side of John Cena, you don't hear it, but he is always, I remember this, this stage of Punk's career, like leaning in really obviously into a guy's ear, his mouth right up against it, then pulling away after like five seconds. And then instantly they go do a spot. And it's like, it's the most obvious spot calling Punk, like was not good about making it subtle. You, you could always tell when Punk was just like having a conversation with a wrestler, just <laughs> leaning in and talking to him. I know like in the, uh, the Punk Joe shoot interview, they talk about how like they would talk about how the match was going during some of their famous matches. And let me tell you, when you watch Punk, you can tell when they're having a conversation. But the match itself wasn't, again, it wasn't terrible. It was just a, a standard match. And again, I, I felt like it, it did show off that each guy's kind of worst aspects and neither guy is a horrible wrestler. Obviously, Punk's a great wrestler, but between the bit of the roughness and... Michael Shane just being a very bland heel. It was just middle of the road for me. Yeah, I, as often is the case, I liked it more than you. I didn't think it was like particularly good, but I wouldn't say it was below average. Um, I don't think it was below average. I think it was. I think it was average. I thought it was perfectly middle of the road. Okay, that's fair. I thought it was definitely better than their previous match, and I thought it was a lot better than Shane has looked in a while. If you remember his match at Night of the Butcher, where he just seemed like he was phoning it in, I thought it was a good match. I liked that they did some callbacks. Um, I liked their, the little spot they did early where they had an extended knuckle lock where they just wouldn't let go for a long time. Uh, that was unique and cool. Um, I liked that you know Shane went for the roll-up again, and uh, the referee caught him this time. And, you know, I, I thought they did, a, like you said, a good job with the finish. So, um, 
so in general, I thought it was solid. I thought, like I said, Shane looked better, uh, which is not necessarily saying much, but he did. And Punk is just not Punk yet in ROH. So this is probably as good as you're going to get from him. So I thought it was, I thought it was decent. And again, yeah, I thought it was perfectly average. I guess you, I like, like you said, Punk's not Punk yet, and he's still a face, and he's still not having a lot to do, which is going to very quickly change. But there was a couple moves I did like in the match. I thought the knuckle lock, like you said, was good. I liked that Punk was headbutting Shane's chest in the knuckle lock, and they worked it to the point where when Punk were. When Punk reverses the knuckle lock, like the crowd pops pretty big for it. Which, when you get that kind of reaction from a knuckle lock exchange, you're doing something right. And I did think there was a cool moment where Shane was going for a tornado DDT off the corner turnbuckle, and Punk caught him mid-motion and hit a power slam. And that actually looked pretty good, too, I felt like. Um, yeah, just to... I would agree also that... Um, this match was better than their first match at All-Star Extravaganza, so I guess maybe just because I had a lower opinion of that match, even though we can agree that this is an improvement, I would still like, you know, think it's a not as good match as you do. But I think we both agree about the basics of step up, it's not terrible. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, next, we've got... This is, this is actually one of the more interesting matches on the show in some respects. Divine Storm of Chris Divine and Quiet Storm teaming with Conan and they're scored to the ring by Chris Divine's girlfriend Trinity taking on and defeating Ghost Shadow and the SAT of Joel and Jose Jose Maximo in 16 minutes 35 seconds when Conan made Ghost Shadow submit to the Tequila Sunrise as I mentioned earlier Ghost Shadow was a substitution. It was supposed to be Amazing Red in the SAT, but Red got called to his first ever tour of All Japan. So instead we get Ghost Shadow. Matt, this is the Conan's second chance in Ring of Honor, but the first one we actually get to see because his first two matches in Ring of Honor, the mini gauntlet he had at Final Battle with Divine Storm was received so poorly it was edited off the DVD. This was not edited off the DVD. So what did you think about Conan and this match as a whole? Well, when it started, I sort of had some hope for it. I thought that the mat wrestling that was being done early with Ghost Shadow, the crowd liked it. Um, then Conan, Conan came in, and the crowd sort of gave him a shot. And remember when you were talking about how Conan was the laziest wrestler, uh, and you were talking about clips from WCW in 1996? Yeah. So uh, if you look at Conan's face when he does anything in this match... It's like he is hypnotized. He's just like, he is so going through the motions. Like, it's not like everything he does is terrible, but it's just, it, it's done with so little oomph. Um, and it's like, like almost like, what the hell did you even bother with this for? I, I, I don't know how to explain it. And then, you know, like, I thought, I, th- I think watching it, the SAT and uh, Divine Storm both seem like they have improved a lot since their early scramble matches at the first couple ROH shows. Uh, 11 months prior, but, you know, I feel like the match construction is bad, and Conan just is so uninterested that uh, it just keeps going on and on and on. Like, there's a moment, like, about maybe halfway through the match, or three, two-thirds of the way through the match, where Quiet Storm does almost like a Hulk-up thing with Joel, and they have this big fight, and it's like, okay, that should be the end, but 
then like it keeps going and i think at that point the match pushes past its peak and just the crowd gets quiet and like this is a point where it's like they're quiet but it's not like they're quiet because they're attentive and respectful they're quiet because the match has gone on too long and it's boring now and so they do um uh divine does like a draping ddt on jose then they sit down power bomb by shadow on uh, divine storm by two then Conan hits a splash mountain on Go Shadow for two, and but then he gets Tequila Sunrise on him for the tap out, and the crowd boos the fact that Conan made Go Shadow tap out, which is a, not a sign that Conan made a good impression. It's probably <laughs> a, a decent sign for Go Shadow, I'd say. But uh, there were some moments, I would say. The match had some moments, but I think overall it was mess, and I think Conan was not impressive. So that's my take. See, all right, this is going to be kind of crazy, but I actually like this more than you, and I thought Conan did better than you, so for once, I'm not the Gene Siskel to your Roger Ebert, and it's of all people, it's about Conan and this match. Now, I'm not going to say I liked it a ton more. This is yet another match. I'm going to, if you like me saying matches are average, boy, this episode of Through the Years is the one for you, <laughs> but um, first off, let's talk about the crowd a little more i thought it was really interesting conan came out and you heard some boos but not a a a ton of boos a lot of reports that he got booed real bad it didn't come across that way at the start to me i i thought you could hear some people but it wasn't everyone during the match i felt like they kind of gave him a chance but the second he wins the match and they realize conan was the one who got to win the match they boo like he they way more boos than he got for his entrance or at any point in the match like whatever he had done in the match, he lost this crowd. Like they resented that he was the guy who got to win here. So that's, that's not a good sign. So maybe more supporting your view of Conan's performance in this match, because the crowd did, you know, he did not win them over when I, he lost some of them. It sounded like by the end, Mm -hmm. um, I felt like Conan, I thought he was fine. I didn't think he was great. Maybe my expectations were so low because of the live reports for the final battle matches that got edited off. Cause I was expecting him just to basically like suck his thumb and say, I forgot how to wrestle. And he, I, I think I wrote in my notes. He passed the bar of being watchable enough to not have your match edited off the home release. So he did pass that bar this time. Um, I felt like he was picking his spots very carefully. He would come in, do a move or two and get out, and you could, um, I mean, you could say that's what everyone does in a scramble match, but especially I felt like I noticed that with Conan here, where it was like, okay, I just gotta do something, and then I can, I can sit on the apron for a while, just like, and they'll leave me alone, and... So what did you like about it again? <laughs> well, I felt like he was fine for the most part, and I felt like for a scramble, I felt like it was, like, going to what you said before, it was better... This felt like, because of the guys in it, because you had the SAT, because you had Divine Storm, this felt like those first couple scramble matches in the first couple Ring of Honor shows before they ever um, called them scrambles. But I felt like, like you said, these guys have improved enough where they've gone from below average without Special K to just average in terms of scramble matches. And I never was like in pain watching this, and for a match that went nearly 17 minutes... I think that's an accomplishment. Like I was never going. Oh, when's this going to end? I would have got. Well, I would have said that I would agree with you if it like it ended when I said it during that cool yeah part with the ho- with the Mac with ho- Jose or Joel and um and Quiet Storm where they get intense. But then it really did go for another like four minutes after that with like no crowd reaction. Yeah, 
I, I, I maybe I just have a higher tolerance for that because I'm used to so many of these scramble match spot fists like blowing the finish in terms of like overkill where they have a good point to end and they just keep going because they just have more stuff they want to do. I mean, we might see a big example of that next episode. I don't, I'm not sure, <laughs> but, um, there was one, I thought ghost shadow in some points looked okay. There is a segment. He had a sequence. He has with Chris Devine where they botched two spots as badly in a row as any spots you've seen botched in ring of honor thus far. They are like Brian XL level, botches so i thought those were bad i thought it was interesting that ghost shadow brian, pulled out- X, brian xl level biatches <laughs> i try uh, you try successfully my friend thank you but um where was oh um ghost shadow actually does the muscle buster here which i thought was interesting because jay briscoe hit the muscle buster on the first ring of honor match that wasn't a uh, Christopher Street connection impromptu squash. And I thought that was interesting because on a shoot interview, Samoa Joe said he came up with the muscle buster watching an anime and saying, I saw that move in an anime and I thought I could do that. Maybe it was well, a hentai guy that did it. <laughs> and Ghost Shadow copied him and also Samoa Joe. <laughs> but it's interesting that we've seen Jay Briscoe and Ghost Shadow now do the Muscle Buster in Ring of Honor. When Joe uncorks that move for the first time, he will be at best the third person to do the move in the promotion. It's So that, I thought, was pretty interesting. Um, Gabe and Doug, I thought, were not good on commentary for this match. They kept saying stuff over and over, like how this was real lucha, even though there was one luchador out of the six guys in the match. Um, they would say stuff like, am I watching Galavision? Am I in Mexico City right now, Doug? Like, oh my god, like this is real lucha. It's like These corn oh tortillas my. are so much fresher than you normally get in Pittsburgh. Am I saying next to my grandmother on one side and my son on the other side? Because I feel like I'm in Arena, Mexico right now. My God, Doug. It was just like, oh, my God. I was just, My eyes were rolling so far back. They came all the way around, yeah. back to the regular. I mean, just especially knowing that Gabe doesn't like Lucha, like that he booked Conan and he just starts going, man, this is real Lucha, like authentic Lucha. Like, no, Gabe, yeah. Gabe no, not come even, on. Not, yeah, like really not even close. <laughs> And especially when, like, the look of, like, talking about how, you know, they tried to put Conan over, but the look of talking about how this is authentic lucha, and then the luchador that's, like, a legendary luchador wins the match and gets booed by the crowd, yeah. like, the optics of that, <laughs> like, is, is that what happens in Reno, Mexico, Gabe? Like, when Conan was in his prime, he'd win matches and the crowd would boo the shit out of him? He was the early, I- he was the early Roman Reigns. <laughs> Maybe it kind of um, was, actually, when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I would love to know, watching these matches, what was going through Conan's mind. Because Conan, you could say a lot of things good and bad about Conan. He's always struck me, if you listen to him like talk to Dave Meltzer on podcast, as a very savvy guy who kind of is in touch with, with what's going on, not just in wrestling, but in culture. So I'm, this is... These two bookings Conan had feel like a real miscalculation by everyone involved. Like, Conan can't keep up totally with these guys. You know, the crowd obviously was not happy to see him. They didn't even really give him a chance. And even when they did, they didn't like what they saw. Gabe kept typing these shows for 
these matches for shows earlier on commentary, like you're going to see Conan bring real Lucha the way he likes it, not WCW Conan. And it's weird to see a guy that's so in touch with wrestling to the point where today he still goes to PWG shows to scout guys for his crash promotion. And yet everyone involved in the, in him coming to ring of honor made like such a bit bad, um, judgment about how this would work. Yeah, it is really weird. And I don't have an answer for why that happened or how. It, it just seems like the kind of misstep that he wouldn't make. But obviously Ring of Honor had was a lot earlier along, so they weren't strongly as known as an identity. And maybe people didn't quite know yet the reputation they would get other than the ICP, which is, you know, they would resent guys that came from the big leagues if they weren't a certain kind of guy. You know, they wouldn't just pop for ICP or Jeff Hardy or Conan because they showed up. For better or worse, they would have a chip on their shoulder when those guys showed up. Yeah. And and maybe Conan, maybe that reputation, maybe Conan helped build that reputation so he wasn't aware of that reputation. But the only other couple things I'm going to mention from this match is... Um, Chris Devine's girlfriend, Trinity, she does her one move every show where she moonsaults to the floor. And this is one of those things that annoys me where Gabe's always stressing the code of honor about how ring of honor is about the rules and they stick to the rules. And then stuff like this will happen where Trinity will moonsault to the floor and Gabe will, I think Gabe literally says, you can't ring the bell at everything. Like she, she moonsaults on the opposing team in full view of the ref and he's just like, eh, what can you do? But then other times he'll be like, here's the five rules in the Code of Honor that are so important. I can't believe anyone would ever outside interfere in a match. Yeah, this, like, is spo- this isn't sports entertainment. And then you just got the randomly placed girl, you know, um, second interfering in front of the referee. Yeah, uh, that it's not something I actually have thought of, but you're right. Super hypocritical and annoying now that you bring it up. And the only other spot that was I thought was really crazy... This match did kind of miss that special K level of craziness and and personality, but Jose Maxico Jose Maximo, not Max Ago, uh, hits an SI moonsault to the floor, and he completely crushes his shins on the guardrail. For those who were watching recent Ring of Honor pay per views, uh, TKO Ryan when he broke his leg this year, it was basically like the same spot and. I'm just glad he wasn't hurt retroactively watching this that he didn't because every time I see a guy now crash his shins in any way, I just wince because I think of like shin pain has to be high on my list of places I wouldn't want to get hurt. It's probably not in the top three, but probably in the top 10 shin pain is just so horrible and I can't imagine breaking your shin. Yeah, it's uh, it did look pretty rough and the fact that they mentioned it made me think that, like, that, you know, something bad happened, because usually they only mention that stuff, like, they point that out when they know there was a real injury, but it looks like that didn't happen. Yeah, so, to some of that match, I, I, Matt thought it was a mess, I thought it was a mess in some points, but average on the whole, I think that match is gonna, you're gonna like that based on how low your expectations are going in. The lower they are, the more pleasantly surprised you'll be. If you come expecting just like a good standard scramble, you'll probably be closer to Matt than me. If you're really scared, like if you are aware of the reputation some of these matches of the era and Conan's short-lived mini-run have, maybe you're Maybe you'll like it a bit more, but 
Going to the next match, it's a no disqualification match. It's the Hit Squad, Mafia, and Monster Mac defeating the Carnage Crew of DeVito and Loke in 11 minutes 40 seconds when the Hit Squad pinned both members of the Carnage Crew after they power bombed one through a table the other one was lying on, and they kind of just do a big dual pin where they're all basically in a giant pile. Um,. I thought this was a pretty standard plunder match. I thought this was better than their match at Honor Invades Boston because they spent less time just choking and showing blood to the camera and more time just doing plunder spots. That said, this didn't feel like the end of a hate-fueled feud like um, Gabe Kip trying to sell it. This just felt like they were checking things off of a plunder list. Like, okay, do we have a chair spot? Check. Ladder? Check. Table? Check. Full set of of kitchenware check like a cowbell check are we all bleeding like check it, it just felt like they were going one after another of these are the things these kind of matches demand almost like more intense than a uh, a wwe hardcore match um, but from the attitude era but not that different in that it was just like less about the match and more like here's a bunch of things we can hit each other with it's another match where um they there's a few matches on the show where they play off the history of things. So this match, they talk about Gabe talks about how the feud started with a guy going through a table and it's ending with them going through a table. And also he doesn't mention really, I don't think, but the, the biggest, most memorable moment of this feud was a match in the middle of the feud where, uh, the carnage crew spike pile drive mafia through a table. And so I guess the tables was kind of like a through line of these three matches they had. Although it's hard to see that as like a real special like calling card when, I mean, tables are just going to be common in these matches to begin with. It, again, an average brawl, uh, the m- most memorable spot for me was actually a botch, which was, or not a botch, but a malfunction. I'm going to guess what it is. <laughs> okay, you guess what it is. Uh, Monster Mac going for like a splash off of one of the lower rungs of the ladder, and the rung just breaks, and the whole like bottom of that ladder leg breaks, and Monster Mac plops on the ground, and the ladder is just busted. Yeah, it, it's weird in the sense that... So here's my thought process watching this moment, where early in the match... Monster Mac does his usual frog splash from the top turnbuckle, which is a good spot. It's impressive that a guy that big can do that. And then later, they bring the ladder out. And this is the one big ladder spot in the match. And Monster Mac sets it up, and he only climbs about halfway up the ladder, maybe not even quite halfway, to the point where, in the background, you can see the top turnbuckle. He might actually be a little lower than the top <laughs> turnbuckle, or if at best on the same height of it. And he acts like he's at the top of a 20-foot ladder. He makes the sign of the cross, like he's praying to himself. And I'm laughing in my head. I'm going, dude, you already jumped off of something just as high, if not higher, and you do that often. I thought, like, this is so goofy, and I'm, like, ready to really laugh at this. And just as I'm about to, like, laugh out loud... The ladder, he starts to jump, and the ladder, as Matt said, completely buckles under Mac's weight, like distorts and warps, and he kind of doesn't get any distance from the ladder. He almost wipes out, and the ladder's like completely screwed up for him jumping off of it. So I almost felt guilty during that because I went from being like, oh, you wuss, like climb higher. Why are you acting like this is such a big deal to like, Jesus Christ, he almost killed himself. You know, if he had stood higher on that ladder and it had warped like that, maybe he would have like just taken a header and broken his neck. So 
I, I got my just desserts for being judgmental about the height of ladder spots. Yeah. Um, I like the match less than you, so there's another one. So we can add that to the list. Um, I thought there was a lot of lying around. Like, that was, like, the big problem with it. There was just a lot of lying around, and um, I just thought it was dull. You know, it's just, like, hitting, guy with, hitting guys over the head, hitting guys over the head. We've seen it before. I thought they did do a lot of showing off of blood for the camera, especially early. Then the blood sort of, like, dried up after a while. Um, it was, certainly wasn't anything like the uh, Abdullah the Butcher match, which was just, I don't know what the hell that was. But You're going to um, see a fork, and you're going to see some blood, as Gabe would say. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, I just didn't think the big spots were all that impressive. Um, you know, I guess the table thing at the end felt very uh, Dudley Boys, but I guess that's sort of what the Hit Squad kind of was, right? Mm-hmm. They were sort of just like a, a Dudley Boys clone. Um, I guess... Uh, let me tell you, they're gonna get your, I just want to defend you for a second. I think at least here they come off a bit more like that. There are some people that are absolutely huge fans of the Hit Squad, and I don't think they're horrible, but like, I just want to make it... If you're a big, like, J-A-P-W fan, like, be kind to that. Don't get too angry at him for well, besmirching I, the hits. Yeah, well, I haven't watched their J-A-P-W yeah. stuff, but watch their, yeah. watch their ROH stuff and tell me that's not what they're doing. Um, yeah. All right, that's, just to be fair. So in ROH, that's what they did. That was, the, that was the position that they were put in in Ring of Honor to be their ROH's version of the Dudley Boys. Fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, we're going back to what we said before. Also, that kind of that de facto voice of the company, where like they're supposed to just represent what Ring of Honor is, which is like no gimmicks and we're tough and we hit hard and just this weird like. But yeah, but they're also getting now getting to this point where they're also the designated one of the designated like a uh, brawling like, hardcore match guys too. Yeah, they well, and they and they do this like I said. Now that they're doing the scrambles, they're definitely better in those than they are in these. I think. I think this is just excessive. Like they, they now the the new thing with this match was they had the cowbell um, when mm. they were driving. Uh, Loke was driving that into Mafia's head. Um, they did, I guess, some okay stuff with the ladder. They put the Carnage Crew's heads in there and hit the ladder with chairs. But you know these headshot matches where they're hitting each other in the head with all sorts of different stuff. They just they just don't hold up well anymore. They're just uncomfortable to watch. Um, and there was a lot of that in here, right? There was a lot of like hitting the, over the head with a baking sheet, then the hubcap, then the chair, then the ladder. A lot of headshots, right? Yeah, and there the, there was something that made me uncomfortable, and it's not even the headshots. It's that um, watching this match, like it, it, watching the show, actually, it's clear that Gabe is really starting to fo- settle into the formula he wants to have, where he has he wants a scramble match every show. And starting with this show, he wants, like, a kind of mid-card four-way every show. And on not every show, but a lot of shows, he wants a match like this. He wants a hardcore match with, you know, plunder and blood. And on one hand, I appreciate that, like, he wants variety. I think that's something modern wrestling could use more of. He wants he wants to almost mandate that there's going to be a guaranteed variety on every show. Yeah, he even said, it on, some- com- he even said it on commentary. Like, we're getting to the point where we have, where you have a different thing every match. So... And and in that sense, I like that. But there is something weird when you're almost like, like I can see a scramble match on every show and just be disposable fun, and I can like that. But there's something about when you're seeing. I know technically this was a feud, but it wasn't like a great, intense feud with twists and turns. And there there's something about watching blood and plunder spots on every show where it just feels like it's being penciled in every show for no 
great reason other than just we've got to have a dose of blood and plunder on every show that feels kind of gross in a weird way. Like, I like hardcore matches. I like brutal stuff, but I kind of prefer it when it feels like it's special and um, warranted. And when you just see guys, like, when you just see Carnage Crew show after show, like, bleed and take chair shots and stuff... I, I got a little bit of, of the feeling of like I was paying a homeless guy alcohol money to eat strange things for my amusement. Like, like it feel it maybe it made me feel kind of dirty, like in a, in a bad way. Yeah, I mean it's like it's also we're watching it with twenty seventeen eyes, and and in two thousand and three, you know, like this was they were competing with CZW and XPW and like that. This was still a thing mm. that you know they like they were always were successful because this wasn't their main thing. And for a lot of companies, this was their main thing. And so they wanted to just have it there for the people that liked it. And so I get it. Um, but it is tough to watch in 2017. It, it's just, it's, we don't, we're not there anymore, I don't think. That's a great point, too. Like, um, I never even thought about that. But I can see another reason to have matches like that is to have that on the back of the box. Like, hey, like, this is another bullet point. You know, if you like CCW, well, we have a little bit of that, too. You know, you don't have to go somewhere else for this will give you some of that but there's just something weird about mandating almost on on most of these shows something like this that feels weird where i agree i completely agree but um next we get a couple um special k segments from their january 1st 2003 ring of honor tv show i hope that it was on at midnight and i hope that there was actually somebody sitting there january 1st 2003 Count Happy New Year and just sitting there alone watching the Ring of Honor High Impact TV show. Because uh, I feel like at the time that would have been me. <laughs> it wasn't because I didn't live in Philadelphia, but it would have been. <laughs> you would, would have been part of Special K's Rollin' New Year, which they called this segment. Now, the two segments they show, they look like that um, one of them they introduce a match on high impact TV, but obviously they don't have the match because it's an older match, but it feels like for this episode of high impact TV, they had these bumpers. They made the almost like WCW all nighter bumpers where like special care having a party and then they'll throw to a match and then we'll come back and see them at the party again. And the party is basically just them backstage, um, inhaling drugs from balloons. They have two, girls back there with slugga and there's even an on-screen like caption to listen like hey check out the girls with slugger it's like (laughs) okay okay and um then we see the second segment which was them after the match they introduced uh special k are all high and either passed out or nearly passed out the girls are annoyed because dixie was their ride home and dixie's all high slugger carries dixie out he's like mumbling to the girls and at one point dixie said he doesn't know he doesn't know what they call jay lethal yet um <laughs> even though he was already established as hydro on commentary which probably tells you that they recorded the commentary like way after they actually recorded final battle yeah, and also that this was probably recorded, well, I mean, it was aired on January 1st, so this was recorded probably at Final Battle, or yeah. maybe even Night of the Butcher, but um, yeah, just more goofy Special K segments, and you can tell Gabe really, you know, when Gabe finds something that he knows is entertaining, he really leans on them, so they get to open the show, they get the segments here, and then we're getting the uh, scramble match. We get the team of the outcast killers of Diablo 
Santiago and Oman Tortuga, and the Ring Crew Express of Dona Marco, and or, they lo- or as uh, or as Dave Melcher calls them, the Ghost Face Killers. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I forgot that. Yeah, and they're losing. They take on and lose to the Special K of Angel Dust, Deranged Hydro, and Yayo. I didn't even remember that Yayo ever actually wrestled. He was always there yeah, for the yeah. corner. I believe this is Yeo's official Ring of Honor debut in the ring. Yeah. And then they're escorted to the ring by Lit, who I think this is the first time he's ever showed up, and Slugger, who eventually gets involved in the match. I don't know if he's officially part of it. Um, anyway, Special K win in 7 minutes, 10 seconds, when all of the Special K pin Marcos after Slugger hits Marcos with a move called the body bag, kind of like this fall away, almost like Ace Crusher, but he's not really grabbing the head. Um, Matt, what do you think about the seven minute, 10 second weird, like, it's like a scramble, a scramble, a scramble squash. Um, Yeah. I didn't think it was good, but I actually found it the most entertaining of like that previous three match segment of like all the mid card scramble guys. Um, I, I thought, you know, part of it is just, I think special K is a very entertaining gimmick with a lot more personality than any of the guys in the previous couple matches. Um, mainly deranged, I guess, um, but, and Dunn and Marcos, too, and I actually, there were, there were a couple of highlights where Marcos actually got to show some cool moves, and the crowd really loved that, that he mm-hmm. actually, like, did some cool stuff, or it was actually Dunn that did more of the cool moves, right? Who's yeah. the ta- which is the taller one? Dunn, right? D- Dunn, and Dunn, yeah. I think yeah. the one, the big move I remember is he does, like, a tilt-a-whirl into a gory bomb that the crowd just, like, absolutely loves, yeah, because really up until now, the, the Ring Crew Express were only getting squashed. So they get offense here, and they do cool stuff, and they show that they can do some of that like scramble-type stuff, and they end up being in a lot of scramble-type matches over the years. Um, but then, um, like, they're, like Dunn does like a Triple H-style like drop-down knee thing, and Deranged does a flip bump off of it, which I thought was really cool. Um, then Tortuga comes in, and he like, just like totally botches the Tornado DDT, which I thought was... Uh, in this match, like sometimes even kind of amusing when they when that happens. Um, but there's just a lot of weird moves. Like he Hydro does this weird move on Dunn where he like drops him on the back of his head, like across. It's almost it's like a lot of these moves are hard to explain. Um, but that's part of the fun I think of these matches. And I just think Deranged is generally fun. Uh, he does an infrared, and Gabe says that he invented it. Um, um, so then Slugger comes in, he does the body bag on Marcos. All the Special K members cover Marcos with their knees and do like a pose, which I thought was a cute touch. I thought this was, I would describe it as a fun squash match with some cool moves. It wasn't well executed, but I was more entertained by it than the previous two matches. See, you said that the, uh, the Conan six man was a mess. I would describe this as a mess. Like, I I would say as like a technical wrestling match, it was below average, but I think because of its length and because of Special K and just the nature of these matches, it was still entertaining, but this felt like a mess to me where it felt like they barely knew what was going on, where most of this match is everyone brawling on the outside, and then two guys will go in the ring and do a sequence, one of them will roll to the floor, another guy will roll in, there's no tags in this match, and... Something that's really, like, there's a moment here where it really solidified in my mind that these guys must have had no plan, because at one point, uh, 
Diablo Santiago finishes a spot with somebody and that guy rolls to the floor. And if you watch this, there's like a 10 or 15 second sequence where Santiago is watching everyone brawling on the floor from the ring. And you can tell he's like, come on, someone get in the ring. Like we got to do something like he's waiting for someone else to get their turn. I did write that. Just, I did write that down. The Diablo just stands around for a while alone. In the yeah. Room. And then finally someone like catches on and rolls in the ring and wrestles with him. But it was just like, no one knew what was going on. Um, I felt like a special K was trying to do a lot of innovative slams and stuff in this match. Yeah. And there was enough roughness in this match where there was a couple times where I was like, I don't know if that's an innovative new move or someone didn't do something correctly. Like it was getting into this weird middle ground, but and it's another match again where Gabe ignores the rules where at one point in this match, I think it was supposed to be a four on four, eight man tag, you know, scramble. And all of a sudden in the middle of the match, Slugger gets in and choke slams everyone on the opposing team. And Gabe's like, uh, I guess he's involved in the, I guess he's one of the legal men. And it's like, ugh, all, Gabe, those, like, all those scrambles do tend to have much looser rules in general. Yeah, definitely. But, um, I, 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 I agree with you that the match was a mess, but you know, I, I just, I, the other matches I thought were boring. Like they were messy and they were dull and they dragged. And I thought this one didn't. So that's why I didn't say it was good, but I thought it was I thought it was entertaining. And I, uh, that's the best you could ask for a match involving these four guys in Special K and then the ring crew, basically. And Gabe even acknowledges on commentary that not just that the ring crew expressed, but that the outcast killers are members of the ring crew, too. So yeah. he's talking about how this is an opportunity for them, which I felt was interesting that he was like acknowledging that they're also part of that crew. Um, I also I thought D- Deranged was another p- moment in the show where he showed off again, like his charisma and his presence and his confidence. And Gabe kind of gave him a bit of a rub here where... At one point, Derange does a code red, which the crowd loved, and uh, Gabe says Gabe says that uh, Derange did that move before Amazing Red did. So I felt like that was an interesting, yeah. you know, way to put put over Derange. Like even though this move is named after Red, like no, Derange did it first, and we're acknowledging that. Like, so I, I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that either. So yeah, if that's true, um. Yeah, I, I thought this was a mess, but there's entertainment to be found. Like, the mess isn't always bad with these matches, even though I thought there was some not good parts of this. But I, I guess, basically, I've seen so many good Special K matches in the last few months, like good scrambles. This wouldn't be one I would put on their, like, best of compilation. But, yeah, it's, it's not something... Certainly that, not, yeah. <laughs> it's, wor- it's worth seven minutes of your time to watch it once, if you've got the DVD in already. And... After that, we get to a four-way match. This is the big four-way. It's one fall to a finish. It's BJ Whitmer versus Colt Cabana versus Homicide versus Paul London. Paul London wins in 19 minutes, 30 seconds, when he pins BJ Whitmer after a shooting star press. Um, so this is BJ's debut in Ring of Honor. And it's weird. I almost wanted to watch this match a second time before we did the show, but I didn't have time because I saw a few people really love this match. People that had done reviews after I watched, I sometimes check reviews, see how my opinion measures up. I thought this was just a perfectly fine four way, but nothing special. Like I think Gabe's report said something like that. This match, I mean, not Gabe, but Dave's report said like live report says this match stole the show or something like that. Well, you could tell by the reaction after the match too, right? With the big ROH chants and stuff. Yeah. I, I just, 
I thought it was solid, but I mean, I didn't think it was anything special. I thought everyone did fine, but it was just a four way. And I can see why Gabe during this match, he talks about how we're going to be seeing a lot more four ways in ring of honor. And he's right because one, he's the booker, but looking forward into the future, every show for a long time now is going to have a four way. And so it's obviously Gabe wants a, um, some kind of element that he four ways give whatever he gets out of it. He wants it. But I think on one hand, I can see why you want lots of four ways because they're, they're good ways to get more. They're good ways to get action because you can do more and pace yourself less when you can tag in and out and you have three other guys to work with. But on the other hand, I feel like it's harder to craft stories when you have more moving parts and it's hard to have something more meaningful. Like there's no real story to why this match is made. Obviously part of that might be because, um, well, no, actually I'm not going to, I was going to give them, let them off the hook and say, well, because Bobby Roode was supposed to be in this match, but I don't think there'd be any more story in this match. If Bobby Roode was making his debut here, it's just, it's a wrestling match. They all wrestle. They do stuff. They all look fine. They all look solid. Um, no one really, I don't know if anyone really stands the, stands out even. I think the thing I liked best, this is another match I thought that had a great finish. Um, Paul London takes the cop killer and rolls outside the ring. And Gabe maybe sells a bit too hard being like, you know, oh, well, he's not going to be in. Like, he says something to the effect. He basically talks like Paul London's definitely not going to win the match now, which I guess you could argue maybe telegraphs it. The other three guys wrestle a little more. Gets down to BJ Whitmer and Colt Cabana because I think Colt takes homicide out with the Colt Forty Five, and BJ and Colt wrestle a little bit, and BJ hits rolling dragon suplexes, and on the third he holds it for a bridge, and then Paul London hits the shooting star press on BJ to get the win while he's bridging in the dragon suplex, and it's a great finish. It's basically the finish from Era of Honor Begins, just replace uh, Paul London shooting star press with a. Uh, low-key doing the phoenix splash and in much just like in a much quicker pace to it so it feels more out, out of nowhere too and yeah i would say this this one this finish is actually better than that one for that reason also because they had london take a huge move and like roll to the floor for a minute or two but also this is a, an example of occasionally not seeing something makes it better where the camera barely catches london standing on the top and then it doesn't catch the first, like he jumps out of frame to start the shooting star press. So when he comes down, it's like he falls into frame out of the sky. Like he was like sky diving or something and just drops straight down onto Whitmer. And it looks great. Like it just, it, the framing of it actually looked really good. And I thought that was a tremendous finish. But as a whole, I don't think there's much about this match that I thought was like, maybe my my hype knowing that people said that this was like, a show stealer and really great. Maybe, maybe it's a victim of me putting the expectation too high. I thought this was just a good, solid, standard four-way match with four guys thrown in it. Okay, well, here's what I'll say about it. So ROH did two of these like four corners singles matches, like four corner matches with like single competitors, um, in 2002, as far as I can recall. One was the 60-minute one for uh, the crowning a champion, and the other one was the 45-minute draw at Final Battle. Am I missing any others? Uh, I was thinking about that, too. I'm worried that I'm missing some, but those are at least the only two that stand out in my mind, are 
crowning a champion in final battle. Yeah. So I think that this is really the first proper like four corner survival that ROA becomes an ROH tradition for years, where it's like four guys they they end up doing like a, a shorter but quick pace match, um, and this match doesn't hold up as well as a lot of matches because this is like the archetype. This is the one that they're all patterned after, and. I've watched a lot of these matches over the years. These are the ROH ones I'm talking about. And the best ones basically do what this one did. And to varying degrees of success, which is they build to just a lot of big spots at the end. Um, you're not going to get a ton of story with them. You know, there were some in this match. There was, a, you know, that um, uh, uh, Cabana and Whitmer were teaming up against uh, the against like the double team London and the double team homicide so that was sort of like a mini story in there but there wasn't a mm-hmm. lot and it led to like a lot of these big like finishers uh, break up the pin kick out reversal another guy comes back and you'll see it a lot over the over time and this match just basically started that and so I think that it doesn't hold up in the same degree because we've seen it so many times but at the time it was cool it was different and the execution was really good. There was some cool stuff throughout the match. I thought you said there wasn't really a standout. I still thought London was the standout. Um, he did a cool spot early where like Whitmer had him in a hammerlock in order to reverse it. London like climbed up Whitmer's thigh. I thought that was really cool. Um, hit to hit a big belly to belly on Whitmer, it, and you know like I said, you said the finish, all that stuff. I thought that. Whitmer did look pretty good. You know, he didn't show a ton of personality, which uh, I don't know that he really ever did. But <laughs> he, uh, he, he, you know, for what ROH was going for with like the just like the serious like wrestler man indie style, I thought he looked pretty good. He looked a lot like Jason Jet or like Easy Money at this point with the same hairdo, same tights. I guess he wasn't as big, but kind of a similar look to him. Um, you know, this is the first time you really got to see Cabana outside of Punk. And I thought, you know, Cabana looked pretty good. Like I said, he did, He does come off a lot like he can hang a lot better than Punk in terms of, like, ROH-style athleticism. But you don't really get the full Cabana package yet in ROH. One thing that I found interesting was that the, the announcer said this was the first time any of them had been in the ring with each other. Which surprised me that Cabana and Whitmer hadn't been, because wasn't Whitmer an IWA guy at the time also? Uh, or was he, he not there was, yet? I don't know if he was there yet. He definitely was an IWA Mid-South guy who would take bookings there i'm not sure if he was at this point okay but yeah i noticed that too because like they had london even say that in that promo earlier in the night that like we've all he said something to the effect of like none of us have been in the ring with each other ever yeah i um i i liked it i I thought it was a good match i um i i do i could i do see why in 2003 this match would have seemed a lot cooler than it does in 2017, whereas some matches, you know, some of the more just like story-based matches just hold up just as well, and this one definitely doesn't, um, but I thought it was a well-done match. I'll, I'll say about one cool spot I did forget, actually, was they do it, like you will often see in these multi-man matches, they build to a dive train, and you think, well, in this match, a dive train is going to either end with Homicide doing his tope con hilo, because it's like one of the best Tope Canhilos in wrestling history, or Paul London doing something crazy. And they both go first, and I go, wait. And then you realize, like, they cut Colt off a couple times earlier, and that he's going to get to do the final dive. And I thought, like, really, in a match with Homicide and Paul London, you're going to save the biggest dive for Colt Cabana? But then, like, he basically does, like, a springboard off the ropes and does, like, a 180-degree rotation, like, 
forward senton flip. And I thought that was actually really, really cool. And I was like, I'm sorry, Colt. Like, I was wrong to have doubted you. Like, that was a very cool way to end that sequence of moves. And a reminder that, again, like you were saying, um, he's a good athlete in the way that Colt, I mean, in the way that Punk isn't. You know, he does he does have an athletic background, and he can do stuff like that. Yeah, I also liked in that dive sequence the way that Homicide did his tope, where it was like he was whipped into the ropes and then like did it out of, out of nowhere. And I always think the coolest dives are the ones you don't see coming, um, and usually they're very telegraphed. But I, I, So I, I love that. Yeah, that, it was a fun sequence of dives. And again, I didn't hate this. I think you made an excellent point about this being the archetype. I, I don't know why Gabe wanted four ways because like he already has the scramble to give him this kind of match, but yet he's going to have a four way now on every show. And I guess as a booker, again, it's, it's nice that you can, you can book matches and not burn singles matches with four ways. But I, I just, I don't see what it accomplishes these four ways that um, other than that, that scrambles don't, especially where like, I guess you would say the difference between four ways and scrambles is that in a scramble, the rule is if a guy rolls to the floor, someone can come in without a tag. Well, in this match, about three quarters of the way through, everyone just starts ignoring tags like you often would in a multi-man match. So at that point, there's really no difference between this and a scramble match. It's guys coming in, doing spots, rolling out of the ring. Someone else comes in, does some spots. Well, I think the big difference is the scramble matches are for tag teams and the four corner survivals are for singles matches, for singles wrestlers. I think that's the main difference. Um, and uh, I will say that if you watch throughout 2003, they often are the match that gets the crowd going more than the other matches. I will, I will just say that. And like, there is something to be said for that. Yeah, like, I think Gabe is smart that he, uh, he's making sure there's, a popcorn, there's like popcorn matches, but not like the go-to-get-popcorn, but I just meant in the sense of like, just like delicious popcorn. Like, it's light, it's not substantial, but you you enjoy it while it's there. And he, he's he's mandating that there will be those on every show by having a scramble every show, by having a four-way every show. It's like he wants that element to break up like the serious story-based matches and the more serious tape-selling singles matches. And he's going to, out of his way, to make sure they're on every show. Like Gabe says in the commentary for this match, you're going to see the four-ways a lot more. Yeah. And so he already had in his mind at this early stage, like, no, I'm going to do this all the time. Yeah, and say what you will about, like, you know, these, like, slots, but these shows are better from top to bottom, like, now that he's gotten to that point. You know, like, there's not, like, there's, there's still a lot of mediocre stuff and average stuff. Maybe not mediocre, but there's a lot of average stuff on the shows. But think about where we were even six months ago in, in ROH time. You know, besides the the Honor Invades Boston show, pretty much every other show from around that, that period and earlier, just a lot of shit. And they, they've gotten to a point where every match had its niche, and they all, like, are matches that seem like matches that have some sort of meaning. Um, and these shows are just, they're clearly much better than the earlier shows, like, on average. Yeah, and watching the show, I think comparing it to the first two to four Ring of Honor shows that they ever did that we watched, um, you watch those, and there's just so many segments and so many different things, and it feels like Gabe's trying to figure out what he wants, and he's just throwing a million ideas at the wall. And when you watch a show like this, 
even if not every, even if a lot of stuff I found was average, it's like in terms of format, like it feels like a guy who knows what he wants the shows to be now. Like he he's figured out what he, his the picture in his head of what Ring of Honor should be, and if it's going to get better as a company, but he already kind of now has. I feel like he has the format locked into his head now. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but. It works in the sense that it's an improvement, and the company, I think, is getting better in terms of consistency. So, uh, for now, I think I'm happy with it, even though it will yeah. get it will get old after a while. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure it's it, it also probably is not a coincidence. The shows will keep getting better when he doesn't have to think about exactly like what kind of shows he wants to have. Now he can focus more just on. All right, I'm always going to have this. So who do I slot in for this month? You know, yeah. I I know this show works this way. So you know, what's going to be my top? R- rather than the first few shows where it just felt like they were just trying a million ideas and they sure were <laughs> trying to see was trying to see what worked. Like does homophobia work? No. Um. Does does uh does like a million backstage segments work? Uh. No. Um. Okay. Like just. But something that did work that will always work is American Dragon, Brian Danielson, and Samoa Joe Wrestling. And they had, I believe, their first singles match ever, certainly in Ring of Honor here. Samoa Joe defeated American Dragon via pinfall in 13 minutes, 20 seconds after he hit the Island Driver. Matt, what did you think about Samoa Joe versus our our friend and future podcast guest, Brian Danielson? I really enjoyed it. I, um, you know, it wasn't like a match of the year or anything, but... Um, you know, like the crowd clearly sees these two guys as stars, um, which they were, I think, you know, they, they, they both carried themselves as stars already. You know, as I said before, I was really surprised actually by how quickly Samoa Joe established himself as like a real like star presence on the show, but he's definitely there. Obviously Danielson's there. Um, you know, they start off with, you know, they, they just have chemistry. They start off with, uh, you know, a pretty intense like stare as soon as, Dragon gets in the ring. They're doing like Indian death locks and and hard chops by Joe. Uh, you know, big clotheslines by Joe. Um, you know, uh, Joe, and then Joe does the hard hitting kicks to Dragon's chest. Does the face wash. Joe uh, debuts at least in ROH the ole ole kick with the Dragon in the chair on the floor. He doesn't do the ole ole part, but uh, that's the kick. You know, he and he knocks down the, the guardrail and everything or dents it. Um, I, a really cool spot, I think, is when Joe does his like patented power bomb and then kick out into STF combo. But Joe just acts like a madman during it, and he does like he's like he's just he's going, "I own you, I own you." And then he goes fucking nuts to the yeah. point where even Gabe and Doug and come to you like, "Whoa!" Like yeah. like he he is so intense there. Yeah, and then Dragon comes back and he's like, "Come on, come on!" Like <laughs> uh, like I love that stuff. Like they they really know how to do the intensity, um, and uh, you know it's not. It's not a complex match, you know. Like, there's not like this big complex story. It's just these guys are matching each other, you know. Um, and Joe with the hard hitting, and then Dragon tries to match him. Um, and Joe does the Island Driver, and he wins. And they make a big deal out of the fact that it only took one finish to put down Dragon because the whole thing they've been pushing with him on commentary is that you have to do your finish to him twice to beat him. And yet everyone's been managed to do that, but Joe it only took one finish and it beat Dragon. Um, I think they had good chemistry. You know, like I said, it wasn't they didn't they didn't try anything too fancy with it. They didn't they didn't do everything they can do by a long shot, but they did a good job. Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, this felt like uh, 
it, it felt like the first match these twos had, two had, but I don't mean that in a bad way, but I feel like they clearly, as you said, had great chemistry, but like they left a lot on the table. They weren't, they weren't trying to just like have the best match they could ever have. Like, Oh my God, 25 minute Epic match of the year, but they, it was a really good match. And it's the kind of match where you watch it and you're completely satisfied, but you're like, man, I can't wait to see them wrestle again. Cause I bet you they can go like another level higher. And that, I mean, I'm, you just get excited for it. And the intensity again, like they're almost too intense for this match because they have no beef, but they're like so intense with each other. There's just something that they bring out in each other. I guess like they just, Okay, like let's go for it. They did the same yeah. thing at the beginning of the four way at final battle. I think it's like, exactly like it's it's sort of like the reaction of like like you get the sense like Danielson is like oh you think you're the uh, the tough hard hitting guy well I'm the tough hard hitting guy like it's just that natural like we should be rivals and I actually kind of like that. And I'm so glad you mentioned the the first appearance of the Olay kick because I have such bad memory that I was like racking my brain scared that like I was going to be wrong if I said that this was the first Olay kick. But now that you have also said it, I have the comfort that I won't be alone in expressing this uh, opinion that this was probably the first Olay kick in Ring of Honor. Definitely, like you said, definitely the first one in Ring of Honor. He doesn't say Olay and he only does like a half, he doesn't run the whole distance, but he does like a half aisle run. And he doesn't do the and, second kick, which became part of the shtick also. Yeah, but but again, it's, it's interesting to see a, uh, another piece that Joe's, you know, the muscle buster isn't there yet. The choke isn't like over yet. I think, I think, and, we're, I think we're a while away from the muscle buster. Like he, well, I know when it comes, but we're a little, we're a little bit away from it. But it's funny to think that like, like you said, he, he's already caught on and established himself so quick, but yet so many of his key moves aren't established yet. And yet he's still super over, having very good matches, even though his whole kind of a package isn't completely fully formed yet. Um, one thing I really liked about this match, too, was... I don't know if there was like an overt story in this match, but what I liked is... A lot of times in wrestling, you'll see one guy will wrestle what the other guy is best at, and they'll go 50-50, and it'll feel really unnatural. Like, you'll see a guy like Timothy Thatcher wrestle some indie guy that isn't a really great technical wrestler, known for being a great technical wrestler, but because they want to do a Timothy Thatcher technical wrestling match, they'll go like 50-50 on the ground. And or AJ, AJ Styles and Shane McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> Extreme example. Yeah, probably a much better example actually but what i liked about this is i don't even know if they were really trying to make this a story but both guys try and do what the other one's best at and they're good at it because they're well-rounded wrestlers but you never get the impression that they're as good at it as the other guy like danielson you know he tries to go blow for blow with joe and he does pretty well but at the end of the match there's one exchange where they're going blow for blow, and you think, oh, you know, Dr- Danielson's getting the better of this, and then Joe just clocks him right flush in the side of the temple with a knee, a jumping knee, mm-hmm. and then hits the island driver and wins. And it was like, yeah, Danielson's really tough at striking, but Joe's better at that. And just likewise, Joe does a bit on the mat with, Dra- with Dragon, but 
Dragon spends far more of the time on the mat than Joe does. He really works over his legs. So it's if it felt like what this match should be, which is these guys can both do a lot of things, but they both still have their strength. You know, like Joe's still tougher at hitting. He's going to be the harder hitter. And Dragon is still the technical guy. He's still the guy who's going to be better on the mat. Joe should have, should have had a t-shirt at the time that said tougher at hitting. <laughs> I, I, I killed Curry Man and then flip it over in, in, inside out. Tougher at hitting. Yeah. That explains why. But um, what else was I going to say about this? Drag, there are a couple really cool spots. Uh, first off, there's a lot of full force slaps in this match. Like, not on the level of low key Samoa Joe, but they hit each other pretty hard. Uh, Dragon gets suplexed from the ring, from inside the ring to the floor. And it's a hard word floor, and he lands right on his tailbone, it looks like, which made me wince. Oy. Um. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it, this isn't like a match you'll put on your end of year list for 2003 or anything like that. But it's it's really good and enjoyable, and it almost reminds me of Danielson said about Super Crazy versus Eddie Guerrero from the very first Ring of Honor show. He said he liked that match because they had a good match, but they didn't like ruin anything for their main event. They didn't blow. They didn't like. Like set the table too high. Although, I like this, although I will say this is better than that. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say that was literally what I was about to say. This match I think is significantly better than Joe. I mean, than uh, Guerrero Super Crazy. But I, it was the same thing where it was like, if I was watch, if I was the guys in the main event, I wouldn't be watching this match and going, Jesus Christ, like. I'm not going to be able to top this. Like, why are these guys setting such a high bar? And why are they blowing all these moves? Like, they they were able to give you a really, really good match without burning out the crowd, I feel like. And and the other thing is, like you said, um, Gabe, one of the Gabe's best booking things, I think, of the last few shows, well, he was doing it for a long time, is, like, as you mentioned, he was putting over that, yes, Danielson's lo- can sometimes lose a match, but if he loses a match, generally it takes two of a finisher to put him down. And he, in a way, he but him mentioning it over and over, he's building this currency, and it's interesting knowing that Joe's going to become champion in a few shows, that he chooses to spend all that currency on Joe. Like, Joe's the guy who gets to do the one finisher and win. Like, one island driver, it's immediately over. And... I, I just feel like that's a really interesting thing Gabe came up with, which is it's a way to make a win mean something, even though it's not like a Goldberg guy who's on this streak where it's like, oh, Dragon's never lost, and the first guy that beats him is going to get this huge like significance. It's like, no, Dragon loses, but he doesn't lose this way to people. Right. And he does to Joe. And I thought that's a really good way of cre- creating something that gives a guy a boost. Uh, you know, I make fun of Gabe for when I feel like he's doing something goofy or wrong. Like, this is something really smart Gabe did that he deserves full credit for. Yeah, you could see he's coming into his own as a booker. And, yeah. And I, uh, that's, that's one example of it. There's little things like that. Yeah. And, yeah, good match. And we'll get to see them wrestle again on the next show. Um, let me just see. And then we go to a backstage segment. Oh, my God, this segment. <laughs> Loki and AJ Styles are backstage. Loki, AJ Styles, and their hats. And they are wearing like toques, as we would call them in Canada, or beanies. And they are pulled down nearly over their eyes. And they look like the two biggest fucking goofs in the entire planet of Earth. Don't you know that was like the cool look in 2003? 
it was, was it? No. <laughs> I, I, I was. I, I have so. another reason I was not cool in 2003 yeah. than that because yeah. I was not doing this. Yeah. Um. So, Loki cuts this whole promo, and now imagine what Loki cuts a serious Loki promo. AJ Styles does not say a word during this segment, and he is chomping away on a what looks like a big wad of gum the entire time while he cuts the promo. At the end of the promo I'm about to describe, he turns to AJ Styles, and AJ Styles literally just shrugs at him. He literally shrugs, and that's how the segment ends. Where she's like, I don't know, <laughs> like what? Like he just cut a serious promo. Why are you shrugging? But um, so he just cuts his usual serious grr, low key promo where he goes over what he said on the last show, which is he has three goals for 2003 ring of honor, which is to regain the ROH title, destroy the prophecy, get revenge and hurt Xavier. He says he'll accomplish one of those goals tonight. He does have one good line where he says that he, uh, had given his soul for the ring of honor title while Xavier sold his for it. I thought that wasn't, a, that wasn't a bad line, no. but I just, usual low-key promo, but just, you have to see this segment. The fucking beanies pulled down, the gum chewing, the shrug, it just so goofy. <laughs> there are a couple of cool guys. <laughs> Although I, w- I will say, in the actual match, Loki had some hair and a little bit of peach fuzz on his chin, and he actually looks more like 2004, 2005, like Rottweiler's gangster Loki. And I actually have to think that's a little bit of a cooler look for him, I think, than just like bald WrestleMan. It was funny too because he's also wearing full like pants for the first time. Well, and, instead, uh, of, like, instead of like the baggy ones, right? Like he's wearing yeah, like yeah, yeah. And Gabe makes a note of like you know you might notice you know Loki's wearing something different it's because this is you know a no holds barred match. And I thought that was funny that Gabe went out of his way to explain that when years and years later Loki would like anger wrestling promotions like new japan for insisting on wrestling full matches in a full suit like a, that hitman styles uh-huh. like suit and tie and gloves it's funny that like at this point in the simpler times of 2003 gabe's like whoa i know we, we know low-key's pants are a little bit different let me explain where like in the future it's like low-key's just like no i'm, I'm gonna wear a goddamn tuxedo you know, for this <laughs> match but yeah that brings us to the main event and that is the no holds barred match AJ Styles and Loki defeat the prophecy. They get, quote, revenge on the prophecy. And the prophecy tonight is Christopher Daniels and Xavier escorted to the ring by Allison Danger, starting her friendship with Pleather in this match. And I'm going to say, um, every time that there is a match like this, I'm going to say, this was the titular match on the card. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta gotta keep remembering that just uh, for, and next time there is a titular match. And I know when there is one, so... I know when there's one coming up pretty soon, so. <laughs> and that was the first year anniversary. <laughs> oh, I did this wrong shit. Um, so, yeah, this match, uh, AJ and Loki won in 28 minutes, 40 seconds, when Key made Xavier submit to a, what I would guess would be a dragon clutch in the ropes. Uh, Gabe calls it the tarantula, but basically very similar. And I thought this was a good match. I didn't feel like this was a blow-away match. I thought... I, oh, the thing that impressed me about this match was when you when I you look at that t- runtime twenty eight forty, they went the whole almost whole half hour at a really good at a pretty good clip like not always breakneck but they always kept it moving and they never really slowed down even like heat segments and and submission work and, and stuff like that don't 
linger too quickly. Like they're always jump guys are always coming in and out with tags. They're always keeping it moving. And I think it's a real testament to these guys cardio that they're all good athletes in that sense that the first 10 minutes of this match, if you had just told me how long is this match going to go, I would have said, Oh, this is going to be a 15 minute match. Yeah. But they, but they, they wrestle it like they're working 15 minutes, but they go half an hour almost. So full points to all those guys. First off for like just, Great cardio, great, you know, effort working at that pace. Um, there is not another match, again, like a lot of these matches, not a lot of story tonight in, lot, in this match, except, again, the ending. It seems like the theme of the show is a lot of matches with not a lot of story, but they then have an ending that's a really great ending that ties directly into a past match. Because in near the end of this match, they go to the outside and Loki grabs a giant metal rod with cement pylon on the bottom. He puts it on Xavier's midsection on the outside, and then he slams a chair on the top to drive it into his midsection. And it's a great callback because that's what Xavier did to injure Loki in their singles match where Xavier won the title. And then when Loki wins shortly after with a submission with the dragon clutching the ropes, that's working over the ribs. So it's a great finish and it plays into, it's a great move that plays into the finish and it plays into the history there isn't a lot of like real in-depth stuff other than that. Um, but this is a match where I thought everyone looked pretty good. I thought AJ looked really good. AJ, poor AJ gets his nose busted open. I think AJ's gotten busted open hard way at least two or three times already in ring of honor. He has, it, a, gla- a-, he has a glass nose. <laughs> it's not a, it's not like a big bleed. It like bleeds a bit and then it stops up for most of this lengthy match. But I just felt like, man, like you got busted open again. You poor guy. And it's weird, like, it's for a match this long, I don't have, like, a ton of specific things to say about, except one thing I guess I'll say before I hand it over to you is the rules of this are weird, where Gabe says this is a no-holds-barred match. And what does that mean? He says, well, it means there's no holds barred. He says, but there can still be disqualifications, he, he says. It's just there's no holds that are barred. So it's weird because in this match... A table, um, Christopher Daniels gets Styles clashed through a table near the end of the match. Um, Low-key hits, ch- hits a pylon into a guy's midsection with a chair. Allison Danger interferes multiple times, one time coming in the ring to break an, up a pin in full view of the ref. None of this is a, is a day, DQ. So at some point, they should have just called this a no-DQ match. Because rather, Gabe makes this huge point of like, it's no-holds-barred, but there can still be DQs, which... Really, this was just a no DQ match. I, I don't know why he felt the need to make that difference. I don't know why. But um, I'm like, what did you think about the match? Well, so I agreed with almost everything you said. Um, I thought the ending was great. I thought everybody looked good. I thought the two big issues I had with it were, like, the pace was really good. It was all action. I thought, like, some of the timing was a little bit off. Like, there were a couple of hot tags. Um, one by Loki and then one by AJ, and both of them were mistimed to where they did not feel like hot tags. Um, like there was a period early, like probably the longest heat segment was when uh, Xavier and Daniels were working over Loki's neck. Like Xavier did a reverse sitting uh, cattle mutilation, he did some suplexes, and then just 
there was just this weird spot where like Loki like or like Daniels dropped Loki and Loki tagged in and it was like all that for that moment and the crowd didn't react at all like it was a hot tag but AJ still did the house of fire thing then a minute later AJ did another hot tag to Loki and it was kind of the same thing it's kind of a minor quibble but I think it would have added a little bit of structure to the match um but I thought one other thing that stood out to me was Xavier for the first time ever really seemed like he fit in with this crowd with his crew he didn't seem noticeably worse than them. And, I mean, I think most people would say, you know, I guess I know Xavier has his big fans, but he is worse than these three guys overall, <laughs> right? Um, but, yeah. But it didn't come off that way uh, here. He, he, seemed, he did a good job. This might have been his peak in terms of just, like, seeming like he belonged at this level. Um, it wasn't the best match he was in. I thought the match with London was, like, a better match because of intensity and stuff and a story, but... This might have been his singular best performance. Um, he did a good job. Um, there was actually a rare moment where uh, Daniels botched a spot where Loki was going to uh, slingshot him out of the ring, and it doesn't actually work, so Daniels has to like hit the ropes and then kind of fall through the middle rope out of the ring. Uh, that just stood out to me because you never see that. Like One thing that these guys are good at is executing what they're trying to do. Um, but I thought it was a really good match. I thought, um, you know, not a great match, but because it was a little bit formless, but good. I, you know, I really did like the final two spots with the, uh, the, uh, the callback to uns- unscripted where he, uh, he hits the, the cinder block into Xavier's chest and they sell it like Xavier had to go to the hospital with broken ribs. And then, uh, the Dan- Daniels getting a styles class through the, uh, through the table. I, I really liked that. And then, and I just thought that, uh, it was a proper blow-off. It really was the blow-off. Cause I think, I mean, at least to the low key versus Daniels feud, that, that feud's over, um, for pretty much for good, and that was the first year of ROH. So I liked that they tied it up. You know, they ended the first year. Now on to new things. Yeah. Um, first off, I want to say um, when you just called it formless, I think that's like the perfect word. I, I think this match, like all the work, was good. And again, I really am impressed by how the pace they kept for half an hour. But it, it, the thing that keeps us from being great and just being good is. It, it felt form, formless for all the reasons you said. So the other interesting thing to respond to what you said is you were saying, you know, that this is the bluff and it was, but that's one of the things that kind of irked me about it where first I'm going to read in the observer, Dave wrote, they did an angle injury to Daniels and key pinned Xavier for the finish, which should set, which should set up the two, the two up for a title belt title belt at some point. Which is funny because no, like this, like you said, this is the end of the feud. And when you listen to the commentary, it's clear Gabe is booking this as the end of the feud. He, I think this is another match where he says like this is going to end the feud, which I hate that because it's so inorganic. But one thing I hate about this especially is he said this before in matches where Gabe's on commentary has gone. You know, whoever wins the, this match will win the feud. He almost ended the feud there, and I think that's so inorganic. I think the wrestlers should decide when feuds are over, not the commentator. But why I really hated it here is because low-key at final battle and just on the promo before this show and during the commentary that bring it up has said he has three goals for Ring of Honor in 2003. He wants to regain the ROH title, he wants to destroy the prophecy and he wants to hurt Xavier. At the end of this match... He's done, Lo- he's done none, really. He, he's hurt Xavier a bit. A that, little, he, yeah. He's broken his grips. That's it. Um, the prophecy still have both the titles... 
Christopher Daniels actually has the most recent pin over Low Key in that four way. He's the, in the last time they've been in a match together. Other than this, he pinned Low Key directly clean. Um, he doesn't have the Ring of Honor title, but yet everything in this Gabe treats this as like this is the end of the feud, and it is in all intents and purposes. This is the blow off for uh, the Key Daniels feud. We don't get another singles match. We don't. Key doesn't regain the title. Obviously, he doesn't go after Xavier again, and it just feels like. It felt arbitrary to me. It felt, it felt like what it was, which is they're wrapping up this feud right now just because they want to get to other things. They want to get to Prophecy versus Steve Carino's group. They want to get to all sorts of other stuff, and so they just decide, okay, let's let's end the feud in a tag match right now. I think the problem. And, I think the problem is less that they ended it and more that they had Loki say that in the promo. Like, if you know, if he just said, "I want to win the title back," that could be against anybody. Um, but instead, he had to add that whole destroy the prophecy thing. That was incongruent. I, I think that, that I, I have more of a problem with him just like them having him say it than having them actually end the feud. Because I, I do think that the feud was kind of, uh, I don't know, I thought it was, it was it had overstayed its welcome anyway. I, I could have actually gone with another one more key Daniels match because I think they could have topped the match they had before at round Robin challenge, which was good, but not amazing. And especially like this is a new city. So they haven't seen it before to me. That would have been a perfect show to do Daniels and key one more time. Well, so I, I'm, I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but was Loki supposed to be involved in the second round Robin challenge? Um, I don't think so. I actually think if I remember correctly, and I might be completely wrong about this, I think the second round Robin challenge came as like an impromptu thing when like the show had some like some guys couldn't make the show. Gotcha. Like I, I don't even know if round Robin challenge two was a planned event. It was might have been more of a spur of the moment thing, but I just don't like that inorganic feel to ending feuds like this. And yeah, like you said, if Key didn't say those three things, it's not nearly as big a problem. It makes him look stupid to be this babyface making these big promises and then basically falling short on almost all of them. But it's weird because they really focus on it because they have Key do that promo on Final Battle at, at the end of the show with those three points. They have him do it again right before this match. And then during this match, the commentary points out those points. So they're really focusing on it while at the same time saying the feud is over. It was almost like, remind me a bit of when Lex Luger beat Yokozuna. This is such a weird comparison, but when Lex Luger beat Yokozuna at SummerSlam 93, where like they tell you if Lex Luger w- doesn't win the title here, he's never winning the ti- He's never getting another title shot. And then Luger wins by countout, and they're all celebrating like he's done it. He's beaten Yokozuna. But in the back of your mind, you're like, he's not going to get the title now. Like, didn't you just tell us that's like the huge point? It's like the same here where it's like they've won the feud. And then the back of your head, you're thinking, yeah, but he wants the title, doesn't he? Right. Like they act like they're not thinking the obvious thing that everyone else would be thinking. Yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. Um, I, I will say, um, it could be, you know, there's not like, you know, we talked about this. There's not a lot of backstage dirt about ROH and it's like any company wrestling or otherwise is going to have some backstage dirt, right? So, obviously, Gabe's not going to tell Dave this, and Dave's not going to report it, and he never does, really. Um, but could it be that they're already sort of getting tired of Loki's bullshit, and that's why they're kind of, like, phasing him down? Because um, it does seem like they're clearly intentionally phasing him down. 
And I, I think that's a good point. I think you might be right on with that. And also, key is getting a full card, you know, between TNA and Japan. And, you know, he's always an in-demand guy on the indies. And it might just be... And yeah, Key has that reputation of being difficult to deal with sometimes. Like, maybe they're just going, we don't want to put all our eggs in the low-key basket right now. Right, they, they seem to put them more in the Paul London basket starting right about now. Yeah, or even Samoa Joe coming up soon. I don't think they, they get right, like, they're going to put the title on him, but not treat him like the way they treat him in a year. But yeah, yeah they're definitely taking a step back from low-key. They still realize what a huge talent he is, but... I think he's the first example, and we've seen this a few times in Ring of Honor, where Gabe will push a guy to the top, they'll have their run on top, and then they'll still be around and still be treated like a star, but Gabe will never really push them that same way again once someone's had their run. Yeah. And I feel like Key's run wasn't that long. It was basically the first six months of Ring of Honor, but he's definitely, I I feel like he's the first example of Gabe's had his time with him, and he's not ever going to get that spot again. Yeah, Joe was another example of that. Yeah. Um, so going to the end of the match, after the match w- where AJ put Daniels through the table with the Styles Clash, post-match Gabe and Rob come out to check on on Daniels and help him up. And I feel like in early Ring of Honor, that was always the signal when Ring of Honor wanted to like make you think something was kind of real when it really wasn't. Like yeah. put Gabe and Rob through the curtain and have them come out. Yep. But I thought this one was um, made a little bit weaker by the fact that if you watch the ring entrances for the main event, you can just see Rob sitting all alone in the bleachers watching them come out from behind the curtain. So he was already out there just like, it was just weird, one of those weird moments where you're like, hey, Rob's just like, not even backstage, he's just sitting there watching the guys come out. Yeah, although and that's it, that's happened a few times over the months. Yeah. But, yeah, good match. And then we close with one final segment. Backstage, Alice in Danger finds Christopher Daniels sitting against a wall. He's drained. He's beat to hell. She brings Daniels his titles. I should note that Daniels not only has the Ring of Honor tag title, but they announced him going into this match as the FWA champion, which is a British title, which will come into play soon on another show. And so she brings him both his titles. She tells him Xavier's been taken to the hospital with injured ribs or broken ribs, like Matt said. Daniel cuts a, Daniels cuts a quick promo saying Key and Styles got lucky and that he also says Allison Danger became a full-fledged member of the Prophecy tonight. And as Steve Carino's sister, she'll be integral to fighting his new stable. She then, Allison Danger then helps Daniels up, helps him limp into another room. And that's the end of the show. And I'll say that uh, Daniels did a really good job here of cutting a promo while still acting like he was like completely just beaten to hell and on death's door. Yeah, which I agree. Probably he's, isn't an easy thing to pull off. No, he's a good promo. He remains a good promo. One of the better characters in the company, um, second only to Deranged. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and that—that's the end of the show. So that is the first show of the year, two thousand three. Revenge on the Prophecy, the first of 20 shows we'll be covering in 2003. So, Matt, what did you think as a whole of the show? I thought it was pretty good. You know, like, I think it dragged a little bit in the in the middle. Um, um, but, you know, I think it was a pretty solid top-to-bottom wrestling show. And I have to say, if you're just, like, going to some random, like, tiny gym in Pittsburgh, even in 2003, and you're seeing low-key AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson, CM Punk... You know, Homicide, Paul London, all these guys, that's a pretty damn good deal, even in 2003. I mean, you look at it, you know, 
when like so many of them are actually big stars years later and that's like an even extra thing but even at the time these were like some of the top wrestlers in the world um just in terms of talent and you just get them on just some like you know this is like just a, a tiny show basically that's a pretty that's pretty cool like i, I have to say that, that that that's pretty cool and i think that that show is just roh has a good roster now they have a good roster of guys who are stars to their audience and you know it only gets better from here for a while and they've gotten themselves to a good place. So this was a solid show. I don't think anyone needs to run out and watch it. But you're not if you like this style of wrestling at all, you're not going to regret watching it. I would say that. It's it's impressive that um like you going to what you said about how much talent they have now. Think about they were originally supposed to have Doug Williams on this show. They were originally supposed to have a amazing red on this show. They were originally supposed to have Jay Briscoe on this show. And they were originally supposed to have Bobby Roode on this show, even in 2003. So even with all that, they still had all that talent. Yeah. So, um, I thought this was a, I said so many things were average on the show. I thought this was perfectly average. It was a very watchable show. It did feel like for the first time, I think this is the first show I ever watched where it felt like, the B show where they had the talent, but in terms of the importance of things, even with the blow off of the prophecy feud and low key feud, it felt like they're saving their good stuff for the next show. And well, I I would say part of that is that the next show is the first like full on, like big show ROH has ever done where like, this is a show that is clearly bigger than the other shows. Yeah. This is, this is, we're getting to a point where, this is the first time where I feel like rather than just we're running in almost exclusively in Philly and every show is going to top the next, it's like, no, we've got bigger shows and more medium shows, and sometimes the medium show is going to have to take a half step back so we can really load up like the huge show that, we got, that we've got coming. I will say, I don't think that the effort of the wrestlers lacked on this show. Um, no, they, I, they all worked hard. Yeah, the booking didn't put didn't like push forward the way it normally does. But the wrestlers, I think, all tried their best to have the best match they could, and that's I think what made ROH special at the time. So nothing you would go out of your way to see, like Matt said. The closest I think is Dragon Joe, especially the fun curiosity of the them wrestling for the first time. Uh, but again, if you watch this show, like Matt said, exactly, you know, you're not gonna not. It's not going to be. There's nothing on the show I absolutely said. Ugh, I I don't want to watch this. Like everything was enjoyable, and Gabe is, you know, the, the show is starting to feel more fully formed from top to bottom. Yeah, there, there's not much else to say. It's a it's a it's a low key, wink wink way to enter 2003, and then next time we will be covering the first year anniversary show or the one year anniversary show for Ring of Honor, and that is a show that is loaded. First time ever in New York. We've got Jay versus Mark Briscoe again. We've got some um, Homicide versus uh, Steve Carino for the first time in Ring of Honor. We've got Brian Danielson versus Samoa Joe again. We've got Low Key versus Paul London versus AJ Styles in a three-way with the winner getting a title shot against Xavier for the I mean, in the same night, we've got the biggest scramble ever, quote unquote. So just a ton of stuff loaded up on the next show. It is also the first ever four hour Ring of Honor home release. So God in heaven, help us how we're going (laughs) to get through that. Um, But we will be back quicker this time. Yeah. And 
unless that ah, unless that scramble match kills us, yeah. and then we'll this, then, then we'll never be back. So don't guys. worry about yeah. it. Yeah. Then we love you guys. It was it was great having you. Yeah. Um, if you want to contact us, it's through the years at gmail.com. Through is spelled T H R O H. If you want to get us on Twitter, Matt is at Mayor M G H M G F. Oh, M G F. Your name is not. Stein. Uh, really, my name is my my name is Matt. Really cool house parties. <laughs> you are on fire today. Oh, the, the time off has done you good because, like, you're already funny. Now you're like double funny. See, my see, too, the time off has done kind. me bad. The time off has done me bad and done you good. Um, I'm on Twitter. If you want to see how bad I've gotten at talking, at Trevor Dame M as in mother in Dame. On Twitter, and we, I we check the forums at Pro Wrestling Only's plug section, Figure Four, Voices of Wrestling. Now I have to check to see if Taylor Dane has a Twitter. <laughs> uh, and Dane Cook obviously ruined my last name because when I was young, Trevor Dame all the time. Now it's always, "Are you Trevor Dane?" It's like, no, you just heard Dane Cook, didn't you? But now, with that great way to end the show, that aside, Matt, do you have anything else to say? Um, uh, at T-A-Y-L-O-R-D-A-Y-N-E, you can purchase tickets to her Tell It To My Heart tour, which is an, <laughs> an odd name to name her tour now since that song came out almost 30 years ago, but hey. Tignataro has a great Taylor Dane bit. I'm sure many of you have heard it. Until next time. Oh, wait, one last uh, thing. Um, okay. <laughs> I just remembered... <laughs> <laughs> that um, oh, the catch point. Their uh, their theme music in Evolve for a while was an instrumental version of "Tell It to My Heart." <laughs> it was. Oh my. It How do you know heart. so much about Taylor? Tell it to my oh man, I was at a trivia night um, a couple years ago, and there was a whole round on Bette Midler that I crushed. Oh and that God. and that was startling even to me. I have to say. She was in Beaches, right? She was in Beaches. She was also um, in the, also the star of The Rose. And she sang to Johnny Carson on one of the last Tonight shows. Correct. And she was in Hocus Pocus. Yes, and um, some say love. It is uh, something. I don't know. I, All right, just tell, 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 <laughs> tell it to their hearts, Trevor. Okay, until next time. Watch um, as much Bette Midler as you can. Tell us how it compares to Revenge on the Prophecy. Uh, Have a great time. Have a fun winter. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time.